What's up my fellow poker enthusiasts, it's Renee aka The Wacko here and together with my co-host Adam Carmichael we present to you the Mechanics of Poker podcast. In this podcast we deconstruct high stakes poker players figuring out what it is about them, how they think, what they do that makes them so successful with an extra focus on the obstacles they faced and the skills they had to develop to surpass them. Over the years, me and Adam have gained a lot of experience in both reaching high-stakes poker ourselves and teaching other players to do the same. We have bundled all this knowledge together in our coaching program, The Mechanics of Poker, which is the most complete poker coaching product on the market. If you want to have a chance to work with me and Adam so you can get unstuck and make more progress in your poker career, go over to mechanicsofpoker.com to apply. But without further ado, let's learn from another high stakes player's journey in today's episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Mechanics of Poker podcast. And I first want to thank everyone who has applied for our Mechanics of Poker coaching program. We chose 10 players we thought were the best fit. And if you were not selected this time, our apologies. We plan to reopen somewhere early May, so stay tuned and maybe you will get selected next time around. Today we will have a chat with high-stakes online cash game player Nafel Bonk Smires. He started poker at a very young age, 13 years old, which when he finally turned 18 gave him a big head start on the competition. Nafel is really grateful for what poker has given him as, as it forged him to be the person he is today. Through being a poker player, he has learned a lot about mental health, discipline, and getting stronger in other aspects of her life. Adam, when you were 13, was poker already on your radar? At 13, definitely not. I think at that age, I was deep into middle distance running. I was competing in events around the country. But in terms of card games and any sort of cognitive pursuits, were not on my radar. I'm pretty sure I had not played a hand of poker until I got to university, like in 18. So yeah, I was five years behind um, Neofel on his journey. And yeah, really curious to hear how this conversation goes. I think he's had a very holistic approach to poker. He's had a very successful live career, as well as transitioning to online poker during COVID and blast his way into the high stakes. So yeah, really curious to see how he's approached poker so holistically and how he's been able to have the success he has. But yeah, very curious to welcome on. Yeah, me too. I've uh, I've been doing some research on him and um, uh, we asked him a couple of questions before the pod. I think it's going to be a very interesting guest. Before we start, though, I would like to give a big shout out to our sponsor, GTO Wizard. GTO Wizard has made studying poker accessible for everyone and in my opinion, is the best place to go if you are serious about improving your game. Next to having access to all GTO solutions for every spot and having the ability to upload your hand and let Wizard find it for leaks, you get access to weekly coaching webinars in which various coaches, including myself, educate you on the most important spots to start crushing the game. Go to gtowizard.com slash mechanics to get started and you will get 10% off on your first month. That is gtowizard.com slash mechanics. Now, without further ado, let's get into today's episode with Punk 30. All right, welcome, guys. Naufel here on the pod. Naufel, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, I'm really excited for this conversation. Uh, I kind of read through your story and I'm excited to, to cover it in today's episode. I wanted to start that I saw as many before you, you mentioned that between the ages of 10 and 13, you went through an intense gaming period playing Doofus and World of Warcraft before you started playing poker. Uh, this is uh, quite common. I think a very, a very common theme throughout our guests. A couple of questions here. First one being, if it was true, the online gaming that got you in contact with poker. Second, what drew you to poker? And third, did playing strategy games before poker help you make sense of how to approach poker strategically? Yeah, I started playing um, video games quite young. And when I used to play video games, I remember that at that point, I hadn't really thought much about poker or whatnot. But uh, with one or two very close friends, we got very competitive. Uh, I remember playing hours upon hours, always uh, trying to be uh, the best or the highest level possible. And uh, poker just fell pretty naturally on the side, not really uh, in relation with game gaming, but uh, some close friends started playing poker and we started playing together in home games and whatnot. And uh, growing up in Morocco, it wasn't so common to play uh, poker online, but uh, I guess with my background in uh, all these online games, I gradually found myself wanting to take poker more seriously. Uh, but it's only a bit later when the game, my gaming uh, days started to fade that I got more and more interested in poker and I guess kind of replaced that fuel of becoming the best in uh, the video games uh, through poker. And uh, that's where I started dabbling in poker. So you started like playing home games with friends in Morocco. When did you notice? Because in the beginning, I remember, for example, when I played home games with friends, it was like, oh, poker. It felt like a little bit of a luck game. Do you remember a moment where you're like, hey, wait, this is not luck. I actually have a control over the outcome of this game. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it's funny. I, oftentimes in those situations, you always have the, the guys who are going to try to take it seriously and realize that maybe there is uh, some edge to be found. And the other ones are just here to punt completely and have fun. Uh, and I guess the competitive uh, spirit is what made me realize that oftentimes like the same people were winning and there could definitely be a lot more to uncover rather than just these uh, fun games with friends. Uh, and eventually I gravitated towards the online scenes. Do you remember any of your first sort of strategies that you learned about how to play poker like still in these these home games in Morocco, like, for example, I remember once I learned the trick. I think it was called, I got this from a book. I think it was called the freeze play. So I would raise someone on the turn and then he would always check to me on the river. So I had free showdown sort of, but like one of the <laughs> first tricks, you know, so I go in my light home game. I raise the turn. He checks the river. I'm like, wow, how cool. Did, did you have any moment like that, that? That you applied like your first type of sort of strategy and you saw it working in action? I, I guess the first strategy that worked out for me, like back then people were just playing uh, completely crazy. So I think though, like the first thing you kind of realize if I play like slightly on the tighter side than them, uh, you can probably uh, do pretty well. And I guess that was the first kind of aha in terms of strategy of slightly thinking differently than the opponents. Uh, and yeah, I guess very quickly though, I started uh, losing 
um, like there's only so much, I guess, competitive edge you can get uh, from home games. And I guess that's what, especially very young, um, at first I wasn't obviously super um, serious with poker, but it was more like the competitive fuel of almost taking it like a video game. And there's only so much uh, you can do in these uh, live games early on, especially when it's just for fun. And so I guess the only way to keep on fueling that, uh, that, that uh, intent to push yourself was to, you know, uh, play a bit more online and which I guess eventually helped out, helped me out. Because if I hadn't uh, tried my luck early on, then maybe I would just have kept on playing uh, these home games and I would have had a completely different uh, route, I guess. At what point did you realize, uh, I think something that you, you mentioned to us was that the financial potential of poker is also something that attracted you. Now, I don't think I pointed this out, but for the listeners, you started playing poker when you were 13. It's very young. Okay. I was playing Scrabble with my mother back then, probably. And <laughs> I was not playing poker. And I was definitely not thinking about financial independence or stuff like that. Which age did that kick in for you? Like, okay, you go from hey, playing a game, you already noticed, like, okay, if I play a bit more tight, better hands, they're just gambling around, I will win. At which age did that kick in for you? Like, oh, wow, this is actually career opportunity i could make a lot of money with this uh that's a great question i think I, at first even though you start realizing you can make money you still have like very uh you know short-term gratification ideas like maybe you want to buy the surfboard or run this like fun little weekend uh but it's a bit later on where i started having bigger and uh greater ambitions of where i would like to be let's say 10 15 years from now uh and when I started, I remember back in the full tilt days, uh, I would reel uh, like these guys playing heads up, these guys playing six max, playing for like hundreds of thousands. And it was still very much this we're talking maybe 12 years ago. So I realized like the potential of poker, obviously, compared to like the games we were playing with our friends. And I guess uh, combined with like my idea of competition, I wanted to push myself with like, around the age of 17 or 18, thinking, okay, maybe then this could actually lead to something where I, I started uh, putting these two together and wanting to take things a bit more seriously. But that was still uh, very early on. I guess at that point, it was more like an idea or a dream, uh, whether, where, like, rather than just being something I was set into, okay, uh, now you're gonna buckle down and go, uh, if that makes sense. No, yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Did you next, so you were rating the foot deal, but did, in real life, for example, did you have any role models close to you that you could kind of look up to and kind of follow the follow the path that it's, you know, that's really, that it's within your grasp, like, oh, he did it, so I can do it as well. He kind of showed me that this is actual possible, not just a dream. Did you have someone like that? When I was young, no. Like most of my, let's say, uh, my inspiration would come from what I would see uh, reeling these online games. And it's only later, later on in my, uh, as I was, as I grew older, um, around the age of 18, uh, I moved to London uh, to pursue an undergraduate degree. And the next few years, uh, that's where uh, I started grinding more. I played more live poker. I met a couple more people. And it's through, I guess, these friendships that I built from seeing that in the real, real world, there was actually some people doing that that let's say uh, these ideas I created in my mind became more realistic and achievable uh, 
if I kept on pushing. So I guess even though I started playing very young, uh, it only started getting concrete uh, later on, around, say, my 20s, 20, 21, 22, uh, when I got more and more involved in like the live poker scene in London. Yeah, you turned pro basically around that time. So you were combining it with your studies, I imagined. Um, you were fo focusing, I think, mainly then on live cash games. Why you? Wh why did you focus mainly on the live cash games instead of the online cash games? And why cash games instead of tournaments? Maybe also interesting. Yeah, that is, that is interesting because early on, I did start playing uh, tournaments. Uh, I used to really enjoy them. And then I think like a lot, uh, they were, well, well, for one, they're much more emotional. And I remember very early on, uh, when I was like 18 or 19, uh, I bubbled this massive tournament with like a really, really big first place. I think for H, you know, it was like 200 or 300 K. Uh, and I remember again. vividly, vividly that moment. It was like five or 6 AM, uh, blank turn off the computer. And like, since that day, uh, I was a bit more repulsed by tournaments. And so it was just before I actually took off to London. Uh, so I had like that weird, you know, feeling with tournaments. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to a new city. Uh, I could grind cash games, micro stakes, but I think uh, at this point, uh, trying out live poker in a big city, which I've never tried before is probably a, a better solution. And uh, I started playing the one two games, which was the smallest game uh, in town back then. And uh, quickly, I realized that like if you put in the hours, uh, you know, you could eventually move up and do pretty well. And through, of course, some uh, some good luck. After a, a couple of years, I was playing twenty five fifty live, and that really helped me uh, not only make um, the relationships but also meet the people that actually made me realize that this was possible, even if I was also studying in my undergrad and my uh, master's degrees. Because back then, as much as I loved poker and it was uh, you know, giving me so much in terms of learning about discipline, learning about you know, pushing yourself mentally, uh, at that point, I still had this idea of eventually uh, going away from poker and maybe pursuing something in like the finance world or whatnot yeah i was gonna i was gonna ask that because a, a common story is now that people drop out you know because they especially you you said you're playing 25 50 and people think like oh well i'm making so much money here but i guess you were studying you were studying business management if i'm not mistaken you mentioned yeah i uh, studied business management and then i i did a, a master's in international real estate which is kind of like a finance uh, degree is it, is it something that you're really passionate about or was it something that you wanted to have to fall back on just in case poker didn't work out or? So I think it was a mix of both. Like the business management degree was at first kind of like a global uh, degree, I guess, uh, to learn a bit of everything and then see, you know, where you want to specialize yourself later on. And then the master's was a bit more specific. Uh, I've always been very passionate about real estate. And so for me, it was like my first step into that and see how uh, things could be. But after doing the masters and diving deep into like the whole finance world, I real quickly realized that if I ever want to, you know, do something in real estate, it would be mostly like as an entrepreneur or um, 
having a slightly different path than working behind an office and working like a finance job and working those hours. And that's where I guess uh, poker as a career for the shortest to longest term started making more sense since it offers you a bit of both. Like you can still uh, find find the financial freedom whilst having the free time and also dedicating more time to other endeavors without necessarily uh, spending 12 hours behind a desk uh, working for someone. Yeah, well, sitting behind a desk didn't really uh, seem appealing to you. I I heard you say that you also traveled a lot to, to play live poker. Was the traveling aspect something that you enjoyed as well? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so the transition, I guess, from online happened organically because at first, uh, when I was still in London playing a lot, a lot, a lot of live poker, I like I absolutely loved it. Uh, it was a lot of fun, uh, not only in London, but then you travel a bit all around around the USA, around Asia, and live poker definitely has some you know very awesome features that you don't really find in uh, online. Uh, when you find yourself in good games, oftentimes where everyone understands their role in a sense in the game. The game can be very fun, like a uh, good atmosphere, people are socializing uh, and whatnot. Um, the only thing is like live poker also had that, had that uh, negative aspect where you can travel around the world, find yourself in all kinds of games. And sometimes you find yourself in games where people don't really understand their role. Like for example, the professional player was here only to make money and not socialize or be friendly with the person, the recreational player who's here to have fun. Kind of uh, ruins, I guess, the experience for everyone. And uh, at the beginning, this didn't bother me as much because like you're traveling around, you're playing fun games, you're still early in your career. So you're, you like the fact that you're meeting new people, uh, listening to their stories and whatnot. And then eventually I started to enjoy the traveling more, but the traveling was for me a way to disconnect from the intense uh, grind. Like I didn't enjoy as much planning a trip around uh, playing poker. And uh, when you're playing live poker full time, this is a bit more complicated because uh, you're not always playing live. So usually when you're traveling, you're trying to travel uh, to play live poker. Yeah, you're trying to combine these two. Did did it start to feel more like a grind when there were live games where people, as you said, didn't really understand their roles? Did it then feel more like a grind? Does then like the vibe at the table is not no longer the same? It's not enjoyable? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I feel like uh, you can be playing the same game, like same stakes uh, with the same recreational and have two completely different experiences based purely on like the professionals uh, at the table. Uh, on the one side, people are going to be doing effort, talking to each other, being social, like social, and then you'll have a great time. And on the other side, you'll have uh, the people who are with their headphones, uh, not socializing. And at that point, it feels like uh, it's almost like a nightmare. No one wants to be there, uh, yourself included. And uh, that's what I guess eventually uh, started pushing me away from live poker is uh, it's not as uh, like steady in terms of what you get out of it compared to say if you're playing uh, online in terms of a lot of different uh, factors. 
Yeah, and if everyone was going to sit up with their headphones at the live poker table, you might as well sit at the live poker table, right? Yeah. No, no, no difference there. It's actually funny that you mentioned that. I remember we had a pot with uh, Joe Viral. Uh, he also really talked about this, that a lot of the, especially players who play online, go play live, they don't understand that a part of your job there is to entertain, especially the recreational. Recreational has a choice. I think he said recreation has a choice to go to the cinema or night out. But no, he decides to join the poker table. And it's part of your job to make sure he has a night out. He wants to have fun. <laughs> We're not there to make money. He wants to have fun. You know, and if you take some money in the meanwhile, great. Right? That's kind of the role that you were describing, right? So not talk about, not not tell the guy, oh, you played that hand shit. You know, this is a, this board is a range check and uh, blah, de, blah, de, blah, blah. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, he, he couldn't, I think he couldn't have said it uh, better. Um, live poker depends so much about the, like the, the environment and the ecosystem and people coming back and people having fun. And so if that is your job, the big part of your job, even more than uh, playing good poker and chanking, because at the end of the day, no one really cares, is having a good time. Uh, and when you are having a good time, even if you're doing the effort, even for you, it's better, like mentally, uh, health-wise, creating a positive environment. So yeah, definitely, I, I feel like if everyone understood that, uh, even the live poker games today uh, in Vegas, in LA, everywhere, uh, would be significantly in a more healthy uh, place compared to now where like the biggest game uh, public, I think is maybe a 2040, which is not, uh, was not crazy compared to what some people might think. You think that's the consequence of like people sitting in those live games with their headphones, killing the game that they felt the necessity to keep things private and only invite, you know, nice characters at the table who are there to have fun with you? Well, I think it's, it's tough to know for sure because it could very much just be an excuse for private games to become bigger. Yeah, but... for me, it still feels a bit like predatory. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's tough to know for sure if that's what killed the games, or if it just maybe made the game slightly worse at a rate uh, quicker than what they would have been if uh, people were constantly uh, making an effort. I guess it's it's probably a mix between the two. Uh, but yeah, it's tough to know for sure if that, that is why uh, private games today are, are this big. And also, like for most people that are getting more and more serious with live poker and want to play nosebleeds and all those really big games. Uh, even the like Asia games that used to happen back then in Macau aren't as, um, don't happen anymore. So realistically, a lot of live players have to be more careful with how they present themselves when they come in a public space, how they network with people, how they uh, make relationships. Like there's a lot more, politics revolved around you know how people want to present themselves especially for live poker uh, which we didn't have back then and uh, I guess this is what I think is great about online poker is like if someone shows up tomorrow uh, in uh, online uh, games I mean he's free to play any game if, if he knows how to play poker and he's done the work he can just come uh, there's no barriers to entry which is I think is pretty amazing and you'll also find big games online and uh, you'll find all that stuff so I think poker as a whole has definitely taken a very uh, interesting uh, turn these last few years yeah yeah I, I, I completely agree so you could say that 
let's say, for example, I remember those stories about the Macau games. People got a bit too greedy and bit too focused on money and didn't really think about the long term and trying to preserve a good ecosystem by being social and therefore the game sort of dried up. So about Macau, uh, I haven't played there enough to know what happened. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think it, it wasn't necessarily about uh, as much as this could have been for what happened in the USA. I think Macau was just a, a case of when COVID hit, uh, things uh, closed and then never really opened. But uh, for my trip there, I don't think it's like how culture plays an important role in uh, in different countries. Uh, in Asia, it's a bit less of a thing in a sense to always be laughing, always be uh, being social. There were certain games where the recreational player was happy just you know uh, being in the zone and uh, playing his game. But uh, I don't necessarily think that's what killed the game uh, over there. It must be other factors that I don't necessarily know because these games has, have run for like years and years. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that obviously if you travel Asia, America, Europe, like the, the, the rule it's also culturally influenced, right? Like, okay, what type of recreation? You have the type of recreational. Maybe he likes silence. Maybe he likes laughing. Maybe he likes shots at the table. Then you also have cultural differences. So I guess, yeah, you pick, you must pick up on a lot of social cues. Like, okay, how do I fit in at that table? Which is obviously a skill that if you started from online poker and want to transition to life, something that you have not, uh, have not really developed. I'm sure a lot of online players will miss a lot of social tells. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, especially if you, you know, spent your whole life uh, grinding a video game or online poker, and then you arrive at 21, not really having done a lot of work about you need to work with yourself or in the outside world, and you show up in Vegas. Well, for one, I think it can be very intimidating. Uh, I remember when I first showed up uh, uh, playing in London, those one, two games, uh, even though they were like small games, far from the radar, like without all these like big players, it's still very intimidating. Like it's a new world. Uh, so yeah, I think there's definitely this, there's this thin line between online players just showing up and uh, needing to adapt a bit, which can be a bit overwhelming. And then those like uh, old school people who have been playing live poker for a long time and so they've been there, they know that like playing perfect uh, poker really doesn't matter uh, much in a live poker game, like what matters really is to be deep and be there and be lucky when the, the player is deciding to punt. And so, yeah, it's definitely an interesting, uh, I guess, learning curve. But I think the good thing is people are definitely, from my last trips in Vegas and the US, uh, people are definitely more aware and trying at least uh, to you know, make things more fun, which is nice. I love I love what you said. Like live poker is being there when the stakes are big, being there deep when the stakes are big, and the and the recreation is about to punt. Yeah, that's kind of that, 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 I, I immediately wrote it down for the people. My main takeaways after after the pot. That's definitely one of my main takeaways right there. Uh, Adam, live poker, Newcastle, right? You're from. Have you ever mm -hmm. stepped in the casino there, or was it strictly online? And did you know your role? I'm also curious about that one. Well, I was the fish, so I was there to have a good time with my friends after a night out. So the casinos were right next to the nightclubs. So if I was in a casino in Newcastle, it was generally 3 a.m. And my role was to uh, feed some of those regs who'd stayed up late and be very spewy and 
get some action. But yeah, in general, I didn't play much in Newcastle. I went to university in a different city. And when I started poker, I started online. And I'd be living in Bali and yeah, like the side of Southeast Asia, which doesn't have much um, poker apart from Macau. Macau obviously has the, but I haven't spent much time there. But yeah, in terms of life, not too much in all honesty, other than to uh, yeah, know my role as, as the fish. <laughs> so yeah, I want to bring the story back to uh, you were playing in London. So you're playing these one, two games. I'm curious to know uh, what your expectations were at that time. You mentioned like, even though the games went overly high, it was still quite intimidating walking into a London casino and playing those games. What were some of your initial kind of expectations when you started playing poker in, in London? Yeah, that's a cool question. Like initially, I guess I didn't have, um, like my ambition and my vision kind of grew with how I went uh, in my career. Uh, at first, when I first started playing, my main focus was like make, making enough money to move up the stakes. I obviously didn't want to, like most of the money I made, it was just going straight back uh, into my bankroll until I, I could play the 2-5 and the 5-10, which was still very much uh, within grab. And it's only when I started, uh, I guess, securing my my bankroll and my position, and uh, like the, the highest game, I guess, I could obtain, where my goals would then take on uh, bigger proportions, uh, if that makes sense. Like at the beginning, it was purely just putting in the hours, uh, playing a lot, and then everything I would make. It's kind of like a business. You just reinvest everything until you get to a point where, okay, now uh, I might have bigger goals and start thinking uh, further further down. I was very fortunate that like uh, in maybe three years, I went from playing one to, to 25, 50, uh, maybe three, four years, which is obviously there was a good, good, good uh, amount of good luck in, the, in, the, in that run. Mm. So how long did it take you to make those initial jumps? So you talked about playing one, two, then two, five, and five, 10. How long did it take you to make those early transitions? And when did you notice that? Wait a second, I'm pretty good at this. And I, I feel like I'm going to be advancing quite quickly with this pursuit. Yeah. Uh, so like one, two, one, three, I, I played for a very long time. Uh, I think it was almost a year and a half, maybe two years uh, purely of, of grinding those games. I, I was doing quite well, but uh, every time I would play the two, five, it just not go well. And there was not much I could do about it. And so that took a good year or two. And then I guess the two five five ten was another year and a half, a uh, year year and a half or two, and then when I started playing bigger, then one thing led to another. I I caught some heat, and then that's that's when I I never looked back. But overall, I guess I played the very very small stakes for at least three years, maybe even even four years back then. Yeah, three years, two years and a half, something like that. Was there any pivotal moment for you when you felt like I'm all in with this? This is my profession because obviously you had your studies going on. I'm guessing the kind of business and finance stuff was still in the background. Was there like a definitive point you got to where you're like, poker is going to be my avenue and I'm going to go all in with poker? Um, I guess the all in happened like once I finished my master's, like throughout, like even through big, big breakthroughs, like my first uh, amazing month, like my best month I remember playing. 2550. Even back then, I I realized the potential of taking this very far, but it was still in the back of my mind. Okay, I'm still gonna focus on uni. I'm still gonna finish. Uh, and the great thing about London is, as much as the coursework and the exams are very tough during the year, you have a lot of free time uh, during your weeks, so you can still kind of play semi-professionally without going all in. 
And uh, the real aha moment, I guess, was when I graduated. I looked back into my, my last year of playing, uh, which had gone pretty well. And at that point, I was like, I mean, I think you have uh, played enough to solidify what you think you could be making in a year from now. Uh, you owe it to yourself, at least to give yourself a year. Uh, let's see how that year goes. And uh, yeah, so I guess it wasn't so much of an aha moment. It was more like steady, uh, steady milestones until like I built up the confidence and the kind of the data uh, to back the decision of, okay, now, uh, now we can go ahead dive dive into this it sounds like a gradual evolution and yeah you did obviously you you talked about it in very uh, kind of simple terms that you were grinding these online poker games so these live poker games and studying myself i went university as well kind of similar structure where you have coursework and exams but you have a lot of free time during the week but there's still like quite a lot of stuff you've got to keep on top of and if you're in the casino every day grinding poker you're not leaving much yourself much time to catch up on stuff. So uh, for you, you're obviously spinning both these together. You're still unsure of which path to go. Poker is going very well, but you haven't like doubled down on it at that moment. But then you get to the point where you graduate and you're like, ah, poker has gone well enough to uh, to pursue this. So it's like this natural progression, but you're now at a point where you've got more time freeing up to explore it. So you talked about, I tried, we tried to ask you basically, did you have any rock bottom moments? And you mentioned one when you were playing live poker that lasted about two or three months. You were quite young in your career. So I'm curious to know what this kind of rock bottom downswing was when you were, yeah, it was just two months. And yeah, how did that, how did you navigate that? Um, I, I remember those times uh, quite well. And, and looking back, I think by far the thing that helped me the most, especially in live poker. I mean, online, sure, you can, it's a lot of the sample is much bigger. You can find reassuring and studying and checking, but live poker is, it's a completely different beast. Two or three months can only be the equivalent of, I mean, maybe like a week of online grind in terms of volume. Um, and back then what helped, helped me the most is like my very close entourage in the, the poker, poker world. Like I had one or two very close friends who also played live poker, who also played those stakes. And it's with, uh, you know, talking uh, things through them, through with them, uh, you know, hearing that you're still doing things right. And it is just a matter of time until things turn. That really helped. And once you find this sort of reassurance, it's easier, I guess, to carry on your life. Uh, like if nothing was going on, if, if that makes sense. Uh, it's kind of like with online, I guess, once you build up the confidence and experience, even when you get a downswing, it's not really going to affect your day-to-day -day life because you, you're reassured in a sense with everything that's going on, but it's just a matter of time. Uh, and since I was quite early on in my, in my journey, uh, and it was my first kind of big uh, hit, it was very reassuring to have like these people who, has, who have done that for much longer than me, uh, kind of helped me find that reassurance that it's, it's just a matter of time. It's, you know, things are going to get better. And they did, thankfully. And uh, I guess it was the last time that, around that time, it was kind of the last moment where I played purely live. It was around the same time where I decided to jump back uh, in the online uh, cash games. It's always good to have 
nice friends around you who can put things into perspective. I think as a poker player, one of the challenges we have, especially early, is when we start losing, we feel like it's just us. We're the only person going through this. And we almost like struggle to hold on to anything. And I think it's really good to have other poker players around you who can give you a healthy perspective to go, look, it's just, it's normal. This happens. You're going to weather the storm. You're going to come out the other side. You've also mentioned during this time that you had to dig deep and you started to incorporate some good habits. What are some of the things you had to dig deep into and what are some of the, the habits you made? So it, it was around the, the same time where I started uh, being a bit more interested in the self-development and um, like doing things that actually help you feel uh, more relaxed and calm, like uh, meditation. Uh, for me back then, it was... Uh, boxing, mixed martial arts, something actively like on a day-to-day -day basis that helps you, that you can look forward to and that can help you find kind of stability in an environment that sometimes uh, isn't. And uh, I remember starting boxing again very regularly and having my first uh, experiences with uh, like meditation and, uh, and that really helped me uh, ground myself and you know find kind of a balance and that was only the beginning because then it kind of started uh, a whole journey of this whole constant improvement in yourself and learning new methods and diving deep and uh, they've all been extremely beneficial for my my whole journey uh, up, up until now. Yeah I love this so you're trying to find this kind of balance and you mentioned finding stability things to hold on to. And this is really key as a poker player because poker is so unstable. There's so much like unknown variables and unpredictable uh, outcomes. That's sometimes we need to create things that we can hold on to and the things that create stability. So um, when you first start exploring meditation, what were some of your initial kind of insights you had or how were you using meditation as a practice around the poker grind? I, I remember uh, uh, a friend of mine recommending a book. It was called The, the Presence Process. And uh, that was uh, kind of my first insight, which was which uh, had a deep impact on uh, on my discipline and way of seeing meditation, because basically it forces you, in a sense, to uh, one focus on things as they come and let them come and let it, letting them go, without trying to control them, and most importantly, being in a state, uh, the experience that the book tries to get you through. Uh, last for three months and uh, kind of encourage you to stay completely sober and stay with the present and take things as they come and let them go. And uh, at first, I thought it was extremely, extremely challenging, especially when you're someone who's used to, uh, you know, with the gaming, um, on my gaming and whatnot, when you sit down for the first time, your thoughts are just going uh, all over the place. And being guided with like this first experience and seeing uh, the well-being it was giving me to be like in situations where sometimes, for example, you might have an emotion that pop up, whatever it might be, uh, having that mental uh, idea to just be with it and let it come and let it go was very helpful for uh, later on, uh, even in my when I was playing and uh, I dived back into online games. I can relate to this and it's that way we almost get sucked into our thoughts and emotions like without realizing very often 
And I think like one of the key skills we can learn is to be the observer. And meditation is all about like kind of removing ourselves from the thoughts and emotions, almost like taking like a back seat. And like I said, not trying to fix things, not trying to change things, just watching, just being present, watching things come, watching things go. And when you start to do that, you realize like a lot of your behaviors are very impulsive. You have a thought and you act on it. You have an emotion, you act on it. If you can just take that step back and be present and kind of observe those reactions, it gives you a lot of space, a lot of choice to choose things. I remember when I first started meditating, I was, I was unbel- it was unbelievable how busy my mind was at first. I remember closing my eyes and my, my mind was so fast. I hadn't even thought about like how quick my thoughts were going. But then once you start to meditate frequently, you realize, oh, wait a second, I can just sit back and observe this process. So I'm really curious to know in terms of like how this transition to the poker, obviously a lot of players listen to this conversation will be either meditating themselves or maybe thinking about getting into meditation. In terms of like that's how that skill set helps you the tables, how do you feel like it's been beneficial for you? Yeah, of course. Well, um, I think it's definitely a progress. And one of the biggest thing I think is once you start being consistent with it, with it uh, it's only a matter of time until like your mental uh, like stamina increases and becomes stronger. And uh, I think in poker, especially these days, if you're playing online or if you're playing live, uh, actively doing things that will make you stronger and more resilient mentally has become extremely important because the stronger you are at the table uh the st- i mean the less likely your emotions will come uh, to the surface and uh, take the better of you when you're playing and uh, poker in 2023 obviously has become incredibly com- competitive in terms of strategy in terms of like all the different things that could be going through your mind when you're making a decision and most importantly i think poker in 2023 of course, there's like all the GTO and technical aspect, but it's also a lot of assumptions and making decisions constantly based on your mind, like the assumptions your mind has made. And my meditation, breath work, uh, boxing, all that stuff that strengthen your mind, the strongest, stronger your mind is, I guess the less likely you are to become irritated if say you make an assumption and make a play or make a decision and then it's wrong Uh, and i think that's been massive for me in terms of later on being able to play a lot of volume is uh, even if i'm playing a lot even if i'm taking a decision at one point uh, based on an assumption when of course it happens sometimes uh, you're wrong Uh, your mind is much stronger to just keep on going even if you're playing a lot of tables you just keep on going. Even if there's two or three or four or five uh, wrong assumptions, you still feel like uh, more confident and I mean, I guess connected to your intuition and you're just uh, letting things uh, come and go. Uh, and I guess for me, all that work for my, the mental side of things is where I see the biggest, biggest improvement, uh, especially when I was like in the peak of my volume things, playing sometimes up to 12 hours, uh, non-stop of a uh, bunch of our uh, hands every hour i could just like get in the zone and let things come uh, and go without trying to uh, second guess any uh, action i would take like the second i would take it okay uh, now uh, we move on 
I really love this. Yeah, I like what you said about strengthening the mind. And the way you're talking about it there seems very powerful in the ability to uh, let things go. So you are talking about making a lot of decisions based on assumptions. We're always like assuming certain things to actually decide on. And then when those assumptions are wrong, that's often the most challenging part. A lot of players will judge themselves when they make a mistake. They'll ruminate over how the hand went and what they could have done differently. But the way you're talking about it is this ability to just let it go. Let those assumptions go, whether you made a mistake or you got it correct, is it relevant? Let it go. And going back to that kind of present state, being very intuitive. So uh, yeah, that seems like a very powerful skill set. Do you feel like your meditation has progressed for the years to allow you to get this point? Do you feel like as soon as you started meditating, you've, you've got this kind of skill set? Or has your meditation practice developed over years to get to a point where you're getting these benefits now? I think it's definitely a, a mix of both. Like I had the, when I first uh, started out meditating, I had the period where I would uh, dive deep into it as in like sometimes in the morning uh, for months, I would sit for like an hour and just be with it. And I think that kind of uh, gave me a lot of uh, early jump into a, a minimum of like mental resilience. And then later on, when I didn't necessarily feel that, uh, need to go as deep in it I, I think it's like the small things that build up and it's mostly about when uh, even to this day uh, when I if I have some sort of regular routine in terms of like meditating breath work uh, going to my boxing uh, sessions the small wins every day massively impact uh, how I will feel when I'm playing and making all these decisions you know you're making so many decisions uh, every minute so i think it's a, it's a bit of both it's a good idea to start with it at one point dig deep but in the long term i think it's definitely like a constant work like there's no uh, quick uh, quick fix um, these days i think the more the more the better but consistency definitely i think uh, outwins anything I agree. My own experience has been very similar. I went very deep into meditation for a while where I was doing like an hour a day for I think six months at it, an hour. But now I think, like you said, like that consistency of daily application is more important. It's almost like pulling out the weeds in the garden, like things build every day and being able to calm yourself and like let things go on a daily basis, almost like hygiene. You don't have a shower on a Monday and say, I'm done for the week. Like a daily shower is kind of beneficial for most people. Uh, so yeah, I think that kind of daily practices. And I think once we can simplify life to uh, what are the daily things I can be doing that move the performance needle forward at the moment? And how can I incorporate them in a way that I'm doing them almost every single day? So in terms of your current meditation practice, how how long do you spend a day? Are you using that as a kind of a morning practice or are you using the evening or when do you fit into your days? Now, these days, I try to have two short sessions, one in the morning, only 10 minutes and one uh, when I finish my session before going to bed same thing around 10 minutes and uh, I try to incorporate like three to four breath works every week which have has been something also that I've discovered that have done uh, a tremendous amount of good for also the mental discipline and all of that and so these days my like my meditation is much more free than before and I still feel like uh, so much um, you know, good, uh, good out of it. And it only has to be very short. First thing when I wake up, 10 minutes. And when, I, when I'm done with my practice, also a quick 10 minutes. And combined with the breath work, which can be, I think, all kinds these days, there's different schools of, of breathing. Uh, once you just get your brain and mind used to doing this every day, uh, give it 30 days, give it 60 days. I mean, you'll see massive, massive improvements uh, 
not only in your poker poker game, but also I think in your daily life uh, for sure. Hundred percent. Yeah, you take back control of your mind, which is operating on every level, whether you're playing poker, whether you're with your partner, whether you're deciding to go to the gym or not. Like being in control, or at least the observer and present when your thoughts are happening, gives you back control of all avenues of life. So it's really powerful. I'm really curious to know about breath work for you. So you mentioned say four times a week on average. What sort of breath uh, work practices are you using currently, and how is that different to your meditation practice in terms of some of the benefits you're getting? So my my first breath work experience was during the like COVID, my first COVID when I was back home in Morocco, and the only thing that I was to play was play poker online. So I was playing a lot, a lot, a lot of hours, and around those same times, I stumbled across the, the Wim Hof practice. So his uh, his breathing techniques combined with like ice cold immersions. And that's when I first tried it for the first time. So I don't know if you are, I'm sure you've heard of them before, but basically it's the cycles of breathing where eventually you, you stop, you stop your, your breathing for a few seconds, you hold your breath and then you let it out and you do a few cycles of that. And uh, for me, this combined with after like an ice cold immersions, uh, not only has it helped my whole uh, nervous system, I feel like, reset and calm down but also when you're combining it with like the ice cold immersion ice cold showers or you know ice baths it it has like uh, they, it's like they go well with each other one relaxes you profoundly and the other one uh, gives you like an amazing kick of energy and dopamine so when you put like these two together it's like an amazing uh, healthy uh, healthy almost secret tool that you can find that uh, anytime uh, you want. And for me, the difference between the two is breath work is a bit more, um, from what I found personally, is like a bigger, uh, profound release in a sense, or a bump uh, where you, whatever is going on, you will definitely feel slightly better after it. Whereas uh, meditation, I feel like it's more steady baby steps to where you're more about long-term building discipline and whatnot. And uh, during that corona period where when I was playing a ridiculous amount of hours between studying and playing, going through like regular breath work and shower helped me go through like in a very healthy mind and body for months without even feeling uh, any sort of burnout, which I think is amazing. And I'm not sure I would have been able uh, to make it work without uh, uh, this, to be honest. So, yeah. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, the way I kind of look at those practices is um, meditation is more for the mind and just watching the thoughts. And it's very kind of passive, like I said, kind of a gradual process. Whereas the breath work and cold exposure is more your physiology. It's more the nervous system and optimizing it. And for anyone who doesn't know Wim Hof breathing, you can Google the practice. But in simple terms, it's you hyperventilate. So you kind of breathe in very quickly. These are kind of really short breaths. And this creates like a stress response in the body initially. So you generally do 40 breaths. And at the end of that, you'll do a long exhale. You kind of hold the exhale. Then this puts you back into the parasympathetic nervous system, which basically is very, very calming. And you do a few rounds, like two or three rounds. And you end up going like from this very activated state to this very calm state. And it's this really weird kind of merge between the two where you're activated 
but you're very calm. And then you combat that with a kind of cold exposure, which basically shocks the nervous system, spikes adrenaline, spikes cortisol. And you enter this point where you've got this kind of both systems operating very well and you feel very activated. It's, it's basically great for the immune system as well, but also for yeah, activating the nervous system. So yeah, I really like that you're on a high level, like incorporating all these practices and they're, they're working really effectively for you. So uh, I think when people are doing this kind of meditation, the breath work, the cold exposure, you're almost bulletproofing your nervous system to deal with stress. So the way I look at this, I'm actually writing a chapter of the book at the moment, uh, the Poker Athlete book I'm writing, and it's all about the nervous system, how it responds to stresses. And what you're doing there is you're voluntarily putting yourself under stress. So the cold exposure, it's the hyperventilating with the Wim Hof breathing, and you're teaching your body, it's okay, we're good. There's no, nothing to freak out about. You know, when you go, when you kind of use that in the poker tables, what happens is you're, you're constantly scanning your environment and your mind's going threat, threat, losing money, losing resources. This guy's pushing me around and you get used to uh, this activation of the body, but also feeling calm and feeling steady. So I think for yourself, like doing these practices is giving you this kind of in control feeling. I know I think you mentioned you did a million hands at 500 and I'll zoom and I'm sure a lot of things triggered you over those, those million hands, but your nervous system's ready for it. It's like, you're not overreacting, you're not hyperventilating, you're not freaking out. You've also spent a lot of time meditating. So you're just watching thoughts come up. You're watching mistakes. So you're almost like this kind of Zen master, just navigating your space and you're, you're not getting freaked out with all the reactions that happen. So I think a lot of players, they struggle because they'll, they'll think about mindset and like how they're thinking when they're very calm and they go, yeah, it makes sense to use all this logic, but then they'll play poker and the nervous system will get very activated and everything they were thinking logically goes out the window. And then they, they sort of freak out going, well, why can't I use this logic in the, in the heat of battle, so to speak? And the reason is they haven't trained their nervous system to be okay. So yeah, I really like the Wim Hof breathing, the cold exposure to train yourself to be actually, I'm okay. So I do a practice where I go to a kind of cold plunge pool in my gym. It's about three degrees. It's like just below freezing. And every time I go in, shocks the body. So I get like a hyperventilating, like want to breathe vastly. But very quickly after like 10 to 15 seconds, I'll go slow in as uh, so kind of inhale three seconds, exhale six seconds. And I'll consciously slow that down. And what that does is it trains my body to go nervous system activated, but the mind is calm. I'm in control here. And then you compare that to like a stressful environment or a stressful situation. It's the same skill set that you need. The body gets activated. Can the mind stay calm? And I think for yourself, you obviously yeah, done a lot of work on, on training that skill set. So yeah, really, really valuable. In terms of getting started with meditation, is there any advice you'd give to the listener in terms of getting started? Do you feel like just to go for a guided meditation or any, any practices you found particularly useful? Um, I think these days, uh, there's no right or wrong. And there's a lot of different uh, ways you can get started. I think for some people, they prefer starting with apps. Other people, they pre prefer you know uh, on their own. For me, what really worked is uh, there is this book called The Mind Illuminated, which is a great kind of step-by-step, -step, uh, very uh, simple, straight to the point, which kind of explains, I thought, really well what you want to focus on, uh, different layers of it. And I personally really enjoyed that. Like I always had a bit of a hard time listening to someone or uh, listening to uh, yeah, all those apps. So if I could recommend anyone to start, it would definitely be that book i think it's a great starting point and then from there um you know go go see where it takes you and if you don't like the book of course try one of the many podcasts like the waking up app by stan harris but i think yeah like poker in a sense is a great blessing because if you chose choose poker as a profession like you choose to be challenged uh like pretty intensively every single day when you when you sit down to play and you also have the time and the schedule you can create around it to become a better version of yourself. Uh, and that's where I think the blessing come, comes from is like, if you see yourself really succeeding and pushing 
through the stakes and whatnot. Uh, like the path, I think, to success these days becomes more and more around, like you really have to try to strive to improve uh, in all aspects of your life, not just uh, technically, like maybe like it used to be enough uh, back in the days. Yeah, and I think when you really get into like self-development, you realize it's all one path. It's not like, oh, I try to have success in poker and then I try to work on myself separately. Working on yourself is working on your ability to play poker better and perform better. I mean, it comes one path. And I'm sure you're doing your meditation, doing your breath work, doing your ice exposure. It's not like I do this and then I play poker. It's like this primes me. This is why I can do what I do well because I'm, yeah, basically put myself first and working on myself. And yeah, I just want to double down as well on the Mind Illuminated book. Unbelievable book for understanding the stages of meditation. It goes through a very good process. And I think for meditation myself, I struggled sometimes to uh, get very kind of linear, like action oriented. Where, where, where are you trying to go to with it? And I think The Mind Illuminated is a great book for anyone who likes rules, structures, but where is it trying to go to? And what level are you currently at? So you basically know if you're a novice, if you're an intermediate, if you're an elite, and what steps you need to take to get to that next level. And I think he maps out like kind of 15 to 30 minute practices on average. But yeah, it's a very, very good book for us to uh, understand why you meditate, what you're trying to do with it, and how it's going to benefit your, your life and performance. So yeah, now I'm really yeah. curious. For, sorry, thank you. Just, I think, a quick book, which is a quick point, which is can help a lot of people starting out, is uh, it's important, I think, to go into it with not huge expectations. Like, the more, like, even in life, I feel like the more expectations you have, especially early on, the more you'll see, like, not really much is going to happen at the beginning, the more likely you are to uh, give up. I think anyone who's interesting and trying should really uh, keep in mind, like, the long-term vision of it and not expect too much in the short term because i think that's what often discourages people from you know uh, really going through with it and implementing it in their lives so with that in mind let's say somebody wants to start meditating but they want to meditate because they want to be like you they want to have this calm mindset and they want a result at the end of it how do they then go into the meditation and drop that expectation? So I agree with you, the expectation is often the, the obstacle. How does somebody like, when they're trying to get somewhere with it, how do they just relax that process and learn to drop that expectation going in? Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I think the, if you trust in the process, like let's say if it's right now, uh, someone is struggling uh, with their mind, mental game, uh, there's clearly steps that you're going to want to take to improve that. And I think, uh, trusting the process of things that have been done by several people that have shown clear results uh, maybe might be enough to just sit down with it, do it consistently for say 30 days, 60 days. And maybe after that, if you've been consistent with it every single day or you know, five, six times a week, then maybe you can start making a judgment or expectations. But maybe at the beginning, just seeing that there's something you want to improve clearly. And some people have... Uh, paved the way in a sense and then just uh, going with it and see how it goes that's amazing advice i really like that because that's very practical it allows someone to go with expectations but then to go wait a second i'm going to trust in the process i'm going to commit to this for a period of time i'm going to suspend judgment just to like give myself time for this to at least take, take some effect it could be 60 days it could be 30 days and then yeah basically you can reassess if it's working for you if you, if you are a kind of judgmental person or you, you do have expectations but yeah i think they're trusting in the process because other people have walked that path and i think that then committing for a time frame that's where you don't you don't judge you do the do the action over and over uh yeah it's really really good all right awesome so uh, yeah i'm curious to know how you feel like this impacts you on a daily basis all right so we've talked about 
basically your mind being very calm, you're not getting overly attached to your kind of assumptions that you're making. So let's say uh, you're having a bad session. Let's say you're on a downswing, things aren't going well for you. Uh, how do you feel like you use these skills on a daily basis? Do you feel like you have to, uh, yeah, just talk about like how like a downswing kind of goes for you at the moment and how you currently handle it? Well, I think the biggest difference since like back back then in the in the, the days is like once I'm in my once I'm in my routine on a day to day and doing all those things, like what happens at the poker table will have zero impact on my uh, normal life uh, whatsoever, which is amazing. It has been this, the case for for quite a while now, but um, yeah, I guess that's the biggest difference. Is like whatever happens happens, and when I'm away. Uh, like I'm not going to feel down when in the, in the morning because uh, I lost, you know, I've been losing for whatever, 50,000 hands or whatever it might be. So I think that's the biggest takeaway uh, by far. And the second one is just like trusting the process. Like I, after a while, you've seen so much, you've you know seen so many hands, you've talked to so many people that you know that it's whatever is going on. Uh, every day you're showing up as the best version of yourself, it's only a matter of time until things uh, switch. And I think it goes uh, both ways. Even, of course, downswings are a bit more obvious, but then you have uh, pretty crazy upswings where it could be very easy to let things get to your mind and then just start playing uh, a bit too loose. And I think it's a combination of both. Of one, like just trusting whatever is happening as long as you're showing up as the best version of yourself. And two, uh, having that complete disconnect between poker and your uh, normal life, uh, which I think is very important. Because uh, if you, every time something happens there, it affects you on a day-to-day, -day, uh, it's kind of a recipe, I think, for a great disaster. Mm. Yeah, when you were speaking there, I could sense uh, a deep level of acceptance with what happens at the poker tables. And this is coming from a place of you feeling okay, regardless of what happens at the poker tables. And I think when you have that, that solid sense of self that my poker results don't define me, I'm good, I'm okay, no matter what happens at the tables, you can create that space between what's happening results-wise and you and how you're experiencing stuff. So for you, uh, you've obviously spent a lot of work on being very clear on who you want to be, how you show up in life, like I said, trust in the process because of how you're showing up day to day. And that's allowed you to be okay with what happens at the poker tables. So I think any player who's struggling with this or trying to work on this, you've got to really start to think of like how you can be okay with, with things not going your way. When results don't go your way, how can you learn to be okay? And this means like building a kind of version of yourself, which is fine with it. Like I said, like generally it means that a lot of areas of your life are in check. That poker is just one piece of your life. If poker becomes the thing of your life, it's going to be very, very hard to apply this concept. Once you realize you're a, complex person, so to speak, but you've got lots of things that you contribute to your life and the people around you. Poker is one, one of those vehicles you're trying to pursue. If it doesn't go well, no big deal. Trust in the process, commit for longer, the longer term and accepting what happens. And yeah, I think that's uh, some of you, I can tell you by listening to you speak, you've got that at a very, very high level, which is, which is great to see. Another thing I wanted to ask you about was- And uh, uh, I, I, can I come back to your point? Because I sure. think it's extremely important for anyone up and coming in poker. Um, like, of course, trusting the process is easier said than done. But like you said, what is very important is I think all aspects of your life uh, being somewhat uh, with you being happy with them. That means every day you wake, wake up and maybe just two or three things you're looking forward to that actually might make your day rather than just waking up and poker being the center of your day. And then in, if that's the case, it's much harder uh, to detach, I guess, in a way. And that, that that's why, especially when you're starting out, maybe having other things going on, maybe having, you know, plan B, plan C uh, can really help 
with actually eventually you being able to fly with your own wings. And even once you are uh, at that stage where you're playing every day, full time, having that, you know, the other things that come around in life, uh, having their place in your life is also uh, very important. And I think some people can easily forget that. And that's how uh, often, you know, you can get too invested in poker, which becomes a, an issue. A very yeah, good point. Very, well very well said. Yeah, I think it also comes down to... Uh, almost like starting with happiness, like trying to be a happy version of yourself rather than trying to get to happiness. That might sound a bit strange to some people, but I think often we go through life trying to achieve something so that we'll be happy at the end. That's how poor success, move up stakes, and then I'll feel good about myself. But I think like what, what the point you're coming from is, what happens if we focus on being happy first? What happens if we focus on being a good version of ourselves, getting our life in check, doing all the things that make us feel good? And then we took that kind of state into what we're doing. All of a sudden, then the thing you're doing, it hasn't got as much pressure. There's not as much attachment to it because you're good already. You're already happy. You're already in a good place. And now we can just pursue stuff at the level that you're capable of achieving. So yeah, I think those things are, I mean, myself when I started to really grasp that concept, it's like, why can't I be happy now? And very often the reason we're not happy in the moment is we create a lot of rules, a lot of things we need to do to be happy. So it's like, I'll be happy when, when I've achieved this goal. I'll be happy when my bank account is this much, when I'm playing these stakes and we create all these obstacles from being happy now. Whereas if we flip the strip and go, right, why can't I be happy in this moment? And we, find, we quickly find there's nothing stopping us. So yeah, I think that's a could be a whole rabbit hole to go down, but yeah, trying to be happy before you pursue stuff and getting like your whole life in check. And then also realizing like, where do the biggest stresses come from for you? Like what causes the biggest obstacle? Very often, like when we go out of balance, let's say for example, health, I know you're very big on health. When health goes out of balance, it's very easy to get overstressed, pressures kind of overwhelm you. So someone's thinking, okay, what things do I need to be keeping on top of on a regular basis? So that, yeah, basically like I don't yeah, derail or get too attached to the, to the short-term outcomes. All right, I wanted to touch on, you, you said you have a, kind of spiritual and holistic view of life overall. So uh, we've talked about a lot of stuff already, the meditation, breath work, and the kind of cold exposure some. Anything else in terms of your spiritual practice or holistic views that you that you think are helpful for a poker player and yourself? Um, I think the main ones we discussed are the biggest ones, to be honest. Like the, I feel like a lot of what I've learned in the past have kind of led to this, uh, in a sense, detachment of things you can't really control and trusting uh, the process. And as... Uh, as long as you show up as the best version of yourself and not necessarily wanting to expect this, expect that. Of course, you can be ambitious and have great goals and work towards them. But I think those are like the main, uh, the main ones that have uh, worked for me and that uh, I've worked towards through these last uh, few years in a sense. Yeah, perfect. Thank you for sharing those in so much detail. I think a lot of players watching this will be wanting to... Uh maybe reevaluate some of the practices they're using and maybe can they incorporate some of these and the way you've talked about them as well none of them are big time commitments like your meditation practice 10 minutes at the start and end of the day breath work what you're talking like five 10 minutes maybe 15 the cold exposure you can jump in a cold shower two to five minutes these are not things that are going to you have to change your whole life to incorporate but they're going to have a big benefit to almost everyone so yeah and then your whole kind of worldview i think is the harder thing to establish the kind of lack of attachment not of expectations these are long-term things you need to uh, be very mindful of for a long period of time so i think anyone listening to this who might be a bit stuck you need to go okay what things am i currently attached to which areas am i holding to expectations and kind of learn to drop those bit by bit piece by piece and kind of, kind of start that progression all right great stuff Renee, how about for yourself? Any practices you do on a regular basis that allow you to feel good and perform at your best? Yeah, the I go on and off, to be honest. Like, same as Nafu and same as what you said, like meditation, there's been times when I go really deep. Then there's been times where I've done nothing at all, but still, 
like some some of your meditation cannot really be undone anymore like a certain level of self-awareness that you create from it like kind of the observer view right that you're sort of the third person looking down at you i think at some point that's not really something you can unlearn anymore if you stop doing it now obviously then what i i remember i remember actually also i felt quite guilty that i was not able to keep up my habit consistently and i remember actually i had a session with jared and then he once sort of calmed me down he said yeah it's fine you you because then i would start meditating as soon as i felt like i needed it again and i kind of felt guilty for that but he kind of yeah kind of reframed that in my mind it's like listen when you need it you meditate more and when you don't need it you know when life is good you 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 don't have to do it per se right um so yeah, with meditation been going on and off. Actually, I'm in the second week now of uh, the Joe Dispenza 75-minute meditations every morning, which is quite next-level stuff. Uh, it's actually quite freaky stuff. So also in, the, in, in these meditations, Joe talks about, you know, energy that you're releasing that you have in your body. You know, it's going to go a bit more spiritual for some people, but it's pretty freaky because you literally feel like at the moment where he says that, you really feel like a sort of, or I feel like this, you know, going through your body it's quite freaky so you actually feel like a release and then he he, he explains you to train certain emotions and then i actually start to feel warm so it's 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 been it's been pretty cool actually i, I read this book already but i do this quite often then i stick with just the rational and the intellectual i'm like oh yeah i read it so i, I think he says knowledge without experience is ignorance or he said knowledge with experience that's wisdom but knowledge without the experience is is something else that's not that's not that great uh and i often fell in that camp but yeah so a lot of things like i've actually i went to switzerland once for a weekend to do like wim hof with like with with a wim hof instructor where we would go down the lake you know make holes in the ice do do the breathing then jump in the ice afterwards we went uh, on a hike in our in our underwear uh was also pretty cool actually actually i checked out last week to go on he does these retreats in poland now wim hof but they were unfortunately all full for the people who are interested maybe next year uh actually adam have you ever heard i came not not we're talking about these type of topics anyway i was talking to a guy in the sauna and he thought he was talking about dark room therapy now this is nothing sexual that it sounds maybe a bit weird but it's basically you're just close yourself up in the dark for like multiple days so you don't see any light and then at i think he says like obviously you know you're in a room it's completely dark so you really find yourself and i think after three or four days uh your body starts to naturally release dmt and dt dt which one is it yeah, dmt dmt, is DMT the one. yeah so it's pretty I, i've been looking into that it's pretty it's, pre it's pretty cool actually i would i would love to do have you have you ever heard about that yeah, it's pretty hardcore. This guy, Aubrey Marcus, quite a kind of popular guy. He, I think he did five days. And I have a friend in Bali who's doing a three-day one very soon. We yeah, basically kind of the theory behind it is you'll spend three to five days in a dark room. You've got no inputs and no senses. So it's almost like doing a, if any of you guys have done like um, a flotation tank or any sort of deprivation, we have no kind of senses. Your thoughts get magnified. So you just, just you in your head and there's no way to escape. So if you've got no senses, this gives you five days for most people, this would be torture, but if, if your thoughts, just watching your thoughts, listen to your thoughts, and basically all the things you've tried to run away from for most of your life will come to the surface. I know people have like reported hallucinating, having visions, that's when the DMT gets released, but basically it's like a crash course in, can you be okay with yourself? And I think there's a philosopher, I can't remember what he's called, but one of the philosophers says, most of man's problems is caused by not being able to sit alone with his own thoughts for a few hours. 
And that's kind of like, it's like, can I do a crash course? So it's like a crash course and be with your own mind. I do like these approaches. I think they can be helpful for a lot of people, but I, I do also think that the kind of daily practices are kind of where it kind of sticks together. Sometimes you do a crash course against kind of the five days in the dark, then you come to the side and say, okay, what am I going to do every day for the rest of my life so that I can incorporate what I've learned? So it wasn't just an experience. It's how I live now. It's how I'm being, but yeah, very interesting. And yeah, if you want to explore that, I'd be very interested in all your experience. Yeah, maybe maybe a jumpstart like that does help because you immediately sort of get a shortcut to the long-term benefits so you are exposed to it and maybe that leads you to be more disciplined in your daily routine. That was actually a question that I that I wrote down. I'm sure a lot of uh, listeners... Oh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. It's. Uh, I think that's a good point and also about the... Re- uh, like a jumpstart can definitely help a lot. Uh, and I also did something similar like you described, the Wim Hof Retreat. I went with a instructor in Iceland and that was like an amazing, uh, you know, like overview of like how you could feel if you started bringing back some of these habits uh, back home. And that's also like a jumpstart, like you're there for a week. The instructor I went in was called Joran, was amazing. It's kind of like, all right, you're there for a week. All you do is in the morning intense breath work. And sometimes you feel that like, those emotions of like your body convulsing and whatnot. And in the evening, you're going in those lakes where it's like two, three degree water. After that, you go to the jacuzzi and at night you just feel absolutely amazing. So I think also, like you said, uh, a retreat or whatnot can really jumpstart you in, in a practice that you might uh, be interested in for sure. Yeah, I, I would definitely recommend. Actually, this guy that I talked to in the sauna, he did it himself. His girlfriend was there as well. So I asked him, I said, what do you mean? So yeah, we, we just took a room in our apartment. We made it completely dark. And he actually said that he was in there for two weeks. That's long, huh? And then his wow. girlfriend would, would bring him uh, water and food. And he said it was it was pretty freaky. Also, he lost like 10 kilo when he came out. And he was he, he was looking a little bit pale. Oh, really? <laughs> But yeah, it, it, I don't know. These kind of things, it's, it's interesting. When I talk about this with my wife, she looks at me like, you're crazy. But I always get like a sort of, I don't know, I'm excited, you know? It's like, oh yeah, my life's been a bit boring. I want to I try something new again. But I'm, or, I'm sure- Or like, can we push it? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? It, it's like, I think, you know, you, you sometimes have to do these kind of things just to, yeah, to, yeah, to push your comfort zone. Uh, Sure. I wanted to ask something because like, I'm sure a lot of people, you know, they, they listen to your story and everyone is now like, yeah, I want to do this as well. Uh, but you know, we've all been there, you know, we said, okay, we're going to do it every day, blah, blah, blah. But then we still end up after two weeks or something, you talk to us and it's like, yeah, you know, life happened. And basically you stop doing it. Uh, does it get easier at some point or does it just remain hard? For example, you, you mentioned cold plunges or cold showers like there's never a day where before I go into a cold shower, I'm like, yes, cold shower. But it's like, mm-hmm. it's exactly what you say. But afterwards, you feel great. So I always try to then focus on, okay, you will feel amazing afterwards, but it's still hard. Any any tips there? Well, that's, I think that's the, a very good point. I mean, it never really gets easier, but I guess your perspective of it could change. Uh, of course, we're all human. Maybe some days, like, it's, you're just not going to want to do it. But overall, I think it's better to just do it because you decided to start doing it purely based on discipline rather than like, okay, today I'm motivated. Uh, I'm going to get in the cold shower. I think if you start depending on how you feel about doing a certain thing, uh, it's a big uh, negative loophole, I guess you could find yourself in because the mind is extremely strong. Certain days that's convincing you, you, you want to do something 
which eventually will be end up being bad for you or can convince you that you don't want to do something uh, that could be extremely beneficial for you. And, and an example is like waking up and not really feeling that you want to go to the boxing class today because you just don't want to do it. But then you just go through with it and after afterwards you feel amazing. And then on the other side, you know, convincing yourself that you really want to eat that fast food uh, and eventually you do eat it and you feel uh, pretty bad. And so I think that's been like one of my biggest uh, like mental hacks, I guess, is just doing things because I decided that I will do them and not really uh, listen or uh, go with what I feel like doing, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, and this is also, I guess, meditation here helps as well, because you recognize that these voices in your head, you know, that want to just keep you in comfort. They're, they're just voices. And you're like, yeah, okay, well, I'm not going to listen to you. And I think it's a very yeah. good point. A lot of people, uh, for example, working out is something that's so deep in my routine. Like there's there, it, a, a week without working out for me doesn't exist. You know, obviously you have weeks where you do more than others, but at least three times a week, I'll, I'll, I'll do a workout. And then some people indeed say like, uh, I don't understand uh, how you can feel like working out all the time. And that's exactly where I'm like, but that's where you go wrong. It's not, it's not, I feel like doing it. It's just exactly what you said. You made sort of an appointment with yourself, agreement with yourself that this is like the minimum. For example, if, if I'm at two days a week and it's Saturday, I'm going to, I'm going to go. Like it's, it's my minimum requirement to feel I mean, good about myself. I don't know if this is the right word, but you know, this, this is the, is the image I have of myself, like, okay, I work out at least three times a week and that's it. It's, it's non-negotiable, right? Mm -hmm. And it seems like you have a very disciplined relationship with yourself. Do, do you know uh, Jocko Willink by any chance? Uh, no. Who is that? He, Jocko Willink is like an ex-Navy SEAL and he has this great quote which says, discipline equals freedom. And he's very true in that. If you are disciplined, if you are disciplined in a lot of things, then in the end, you will have freedom. Right. It doesn't it may, maybe not sound like that because, you know, you will not eat that hamburger or that fast food. You know, you don't feel like that's freedom. But if you're disciplined then in the end, you have more freedom because, you know, you will be healthier, for example. But yeah, Jocko Willink, he has, he, has a, he has a Jocko Willink podcast and he's a, yeah, he's an interesting guy. He, if you think Navy SEAL, if you close your eyes and think Navy SEAL, that's Jocko Willink. Big, Is it the bald guy? guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's, it's quite interesting. But yeah, actually, to, to get to your conversation, I was uh, I was here observing a lot of good points. Uh, I thought also what really helps you in a downswing, and I think what meditation in general helps you with as well, you realize that, you know, uh, let's say it's bad weather, but you realize that the sun is behind the clouds and that, you know, it's just bad weather for one day, maybe two. But after that, there will be a sunny day. So you don't freak out. When, when there's a bad day, you know, like, oh, it's a bad day. And then you start projecting that bad day into the future. And imagine that this is just a storm that you're never going to go out of. Where I think meditation teaches you really like the sun, the sun is still shining and it just makes you see the sun, right? And obviously you believe in a long-term positive outcome. So whatever happens in the short term, it doesn't really matter because you so strongly believe, right? And obviously, has there been a point where it was bad weather for so long, let's say months, that at some point you, you start to feel doubt. But even like, again, with, with, with the meditation, like when those voices come that make you doubt, you probably spot them just as voices. Correct? I, I In like the recent years, uh, I can't really uh, remember it. Uh, but if like definitely that big downswing I had in life when I, like I 
somewhat at the beginning. Uh, definitely felt that way. Like that's it. Uh, we've come to the point where, and I think it's very easy to get overwhelmed, uh, start thinking that's it. Uh, but that's where I think a closed circle of, and a closed circle can just be one person, uh, just that one person that helps to find the right road and helps reassure you that uh, there will be, uh, you know, some sunlight coming uh, uh, soon. But when I started being very serious with um, online, like my first full time playing online, I was just playing so much volume uh, that I mean, it was almost impossible for you know downswing to last two or three months if you're playing say 150 to 200,000 hands a month. So it never really felt too, uh, too long, uh, if that makes sense. I don't necessarily would recommend playing that much, but that's what worked for me uh, in my first year playing full-time uh, back home. In Hi guys, Rene aka The Wacko here with a quick Mechanics of Poker 2.0 announcement. In our program, you will get access to 80 plus hours of content in which we will explain you all aspects needed in order to become a more successful poker player. Now, one of these, of course, is the technical aspect of the game in which I'll be explaining you all the mechanics behind poker strategies. We'll be talking about GTO, exploitive play with an extra focus on the why behind certain strategies and why the population has certain leaks. And to increase your win rate even further, we've recently added a river bluff and bluff catching section so you can increase your NV when those pots become very big. Our mindset and performance coach Adam Carmichael, he took care of the mental game and performance section of this program in which he will teach you everything you need to know in order to break through limiting beliefs, better handle your emotions, break free from tilt and play your A game more consistently. And last but not least, we've added the management and optimization section in the program in which we will give you various tips and tricks to make it more likely for your poker career to succeed and how to continuously improve as a poker player. Now, on top of that, this concept is continuously evolving based on feedback and suggestions we get from our community. Next to all this content, you will have access to our exclusive Discord community, monthly live Q&A calls, and one-on-one -on -one coaching session in which we are going to be reviewing if you have been implementing the stuff that we teach you in the mechanics of poker correctly. So do you think you have what it takes to master the mechanics of poker? Go over to mechanicsofpoker.com and maybe you will get a chance to work with me and Adam and make more progress in your poker career. But for now, without further ado, let's get back into more goodness in today's episode. Actually, I wanted to uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about this this period. Uh, I think it was 2019. You mentioned you went from playing these high stakes live poker games, and you wanted to challenge yourself at 200 NL Zoom, I believe it was. So you switched back to online. Uh, yeah. What were your expectations jumping in, and how was reality? So at, at first, I challenged myself purely um, for the sake of like technically speaking, being able to prove myself in a, back then it was quite competitive, the challenge is so cool. And I was doing you know, well in live poker and I thought if I'm gonna be serious with my live poker career, there was obviously certain lineups where I would see things and I, I felt a bit uh, outclassed by some of these guys. So I was like, okay, uh, let's focus on online just for a bit. 
And initially, I just wanted to be 200 zoom for like say 40 dB uh, over a certain sample. So I jumped, I jumped straight in. And funnily enough, I did really well uh, at the beginning. I remember winning like 50 buy-ins uh, quite quickly, but then I obviously lost it all back and uh, kept on losing, lost, lost a bit more. And I was like, okay, maybe this, not, this is not uh, what I thought it is gonna be. And that's when I started working closely with a coach who was doing really, really well back then at Founder Zoom. And he kind of completely uh, shifted my ideas and thoughts about creating your strategy and like building blocks from uh, where to go from there. And I think thanks to the work we did, I was able to you know dive deeper into my studying and how I decided to move things. And uh, eventually I did well at 200 Zoom and moved to 500 Zoom, but I was still playing a lot of uh, live. So like by the time COVID uh, hit, I, I was already regularly playing in like the 500 Zoom pool and some of the 1k games just like it wasn't full full time i love that you that that what what you mentioned about this coaching experience that he gave you building blocks now you know i do i go do coaching myself and what we in our program we always strive towards with our goal is to make someone completely independent that after he went through a program that he he has as you say the building blocks for a career that's gonna last until eternity right which shows a certain philosophy of teaching, right? I can I can say, okay, do this, do this. You can send me your data. I say, this is the league, this is the league. Correct there, bet more here, check more there. You know, th this type of coaching. But that's not building blocks. Do you remember some of the... Uh, uh, what, what type of building blocks do you remember that were really like big aha moments for you that have been very beneficial that he taught you? I think the, the most important one for sure is like, where the money actually comes from. Uh, sure, it's, it's amazing to spend your time on Payo and understand strategies perfectly, but in the real world, even to this day, I think very few or almost no one actually plays exactly like Payo. So the building blocks in a sense where you start to understand how slight variation in, in like uh, game strategy will lead to vastly different outputs of how you should play a hand or how it should affect decision three. And I guess understanding that enabled me to make much more like maneuver a lot more uh, away from like a strict strategy. Okay, this is what Gicio Solver is doing. Uh, I'm going to do that. Uh, where in reality, uh, I think that's not really uh, how things actually go. And, that was for me the biggest aha moment is uh, understanding where the money comes from and understanding how with the use of you know solvers, uh, understanding how slight variations in a strategy completely uh, change the way you should actually play uh, a hand. And once you start um, thinking like that, it also opens up a lot of uh, maneuverability, you know, because then, uh, if you make an assumption based on someone's play and you, you play your hand accordingly to that, well, then there's, you know, if you have a strong reason and a strong assumption, there's only so much uh, in the wrong you can be. And uh, going with that mindset really forced me to uh, dive deep with the solvers, but more than that, understand uh, how, you know, different a lot of people are, are playing and creating my own style uh, uh, around that.
Now, you know, people are going to be very wondering after what you just said, where does the money come from? That's a great question. But I mean, that's a very broad question uh, in a sense where obviously for one, the money will come from the recreational player. But I think there's also some spots that are much more important than others. Uh, I think there's certain spots uh, where people maybe spend a lot of time trying to play perfectly that uh, really don't really matter so much. Uh, that could be as little as, uh, I don't know, your flop seabed strategy on a complex board playing that perfectly or uh, don't betting the turn you know, on, the, on the, this specific run out in the three bet pot. Where in reality, I think, once you understand uh, different nodes in player profiles, uh, real differences can be mostly made on the turn and the, and the river where you start plugging in how you think they play differently. And then based on that, with your assumption, uh, you will start seeing big win or big losses in uh, EV uh, if you play around with the software. But then you can go a step further and even say that realistically, there's only so much edge you can get on professionals because they're very, very good. And you really want to focus on uh, the recreational players. So I guess it's it's a bit of both, and if that makes sense. No, yeah, that make that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and especially, yeah, it's, it's like what you said. You know, you can be drawn. I I think I've been a victim of that many times. You know, that I'm being drawn to a note that's maybe not very relevant, but it does trigger a lot of my curiosity and my creativity, and I think it's so cool. Uh, but then let's say on the river you make a 40 bb punt yeah then goodbye win rate you know so yeah it's it's obviously the 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 later down the tree you go the more i always look at it like this the later down the tree you go the more options someone had to make a decisions and the more decisions we have to make the further away we deviate from gto so naturally speaking on the river usually we're already very far from how the tree started, let's say pre-flop, you know, it's easy to follow a chart, but then especially if we had to make one, two or three decisions to get to the river, the ranges are no longer really the same. And that's kind of where I think also intuition comes in a lot. And I think also that's where looking at a solver, not necessarily to copy the strategy, but mainly to understand the strategy and then maybe understand why then a certain leak will occur, right? That's, I think, then the most interesting knowledge instead of copying the strategy there. Uh, so we can make the right deviation and make a lot of money there. Um, do you? W would you agree? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I, I feel like the more, um, the more you kind of get in hand with that mindset, then the more you'll detach a bit more about the studying and want to play more and more and more. And uh, for me, that's always been very important in the, in my improvement throughout my career. Is okay. Uh, I I dove deep. I try. I have a somewhat idea of like how things should go and then i would just play a lot and i think playing is uh, one of the best ways to really challenge your assumptions and uh, you know work with them in a way and i feel like the more you kind of uh, understand and uh, realize that not everyone is playing perfectly we're all humans uh, the more okay you will be to opening your creativity because i remember even when you were playing back in the day, you were extremely strong and creative player who went with his reads. And I think that's where oftentimes, you know, the bigger win rates uh, will come from is people who are not necessarily scared of 
going out of the norm. And I think that's what I mean with building blocks is if you have enough knowledge to create strong assumptions, then you can start flying on your own. But if you're always uh, trying to play like the solver or copy a strategy, it's a bit more complicated to find those you know, small edges, even especially versus, um, I think, recreational players. I think a great idea is some uh, great theoretical players have a hard time doing really well against the recreational player. And that's you know maybe because they have They've spent so much time perfectioning a uh, you know, perfect GTO strategy, which in reality might not do great against another strong player, but then versus a recreational, I think it's a disaster to play uh, GTO. But yeah, I think the f there's a very big difference in thought process where GTO-oriented players, they think from their range onwards, whereas if you're more exploitative or versus recreationals, you think more in terms of your opponent's range and tendencies, and then you just look at your hands in isolation versus that range and tendencies, right? It's a, it's a, I usually call it a way more offensive approach, right? You're trying to play your hands based on villain, whereas the defensive approach, aka a more GTO approach, is more okay. I play from my range onwards or from my strategy onwards, and from that, you know, if the other guy deviates, I make money. Basically, I think both are important i think if you only have one or the other your game will lack right because let's say you're only an offensive player yeah what do you do if you start moving up the stakes and people will play more solid right there's less room maybe to attack what do you do or what do you do when you have no information on your opponent what do you do you have nothing mm -hmm. to fall back on and actually i was very guilty of that i was only exploitive basically and then it was only when i added solvers and more theory that sort of my b game or how far i how far i could fall became more solid. So also if I had no information, the baseline play, so to speak, was at least not bad. Whereas in the past, you know, I could make a genius play and a very, very big punt in, in the same session or in the same minute, you know? Yeah. Uh, and sure. I think that's also like from a mental game approach, the exploitive side is just way harder because yes, you will make very good decisions that have very big V. But like you said, if your assumption is wrong, you also make a big punt. Whereas yeah. if you stay a bit more in the GTO realm, you know, your decision at least sort of can't be be that bad. I, I think uh, anyone who wants to get serious about the game definitely wants to start with understanding uh, those mechanics and uh, GTO really well, because that's uh, definitely, I think, the minimum baseline to win most games these days. And I feel like it's only once you have a very strong grasp, understanding of the fundamentals of how these dynamics work, that you can start being uh, somewhat creative with the nodes and how they change. Whereas, like, say, five, six years ago, you could just play complete street poker. I think this is not possible at all anymore. I think it's you really want to have that baseline and from there understand you know, those slight tweaks and variations. But uh, you definitely want to have, I think, very good understanding of you know, what the baseline is and what most people should want to be doing in certain. Uh, certain spots to yeah. then let your creativity uh, come in yeah and this is also the why that the reason why the why is so important because when you said where the money comes from you can say you can see that like moralistic but you can also see that with strategies individualistically in the solver or a specific hand where does the ev come from with this hand plate in this line or where does the ev of this bet size in the solver come from or this line come from right and then you can say oh he's generating ev by taking this line and then you have to reflect 
right? This is where you can kind of project, okay, you look at the real situation. Does my hand generate EV in the same way the solver generates EV? Because the solver is trying to achieve something by taking a certain line, but it might be that in practice, achieving that is actually by doing a different line. And that's, I think, where, where your intuition definitely comes in, right? You understand the concept, like, okay, it's trying to accomplish this with this sizing line, hand, whatever. In solver world, it works because this is what happens, but in practice, this doesn't happen. So we take a different line, but the concept is the same, right? And yeah. I think we should strive towards understanding the concepts, like the drivers, the mechanics behind those strategies. That will also give you long-term results because then if people deviate strategies or pool tendencies change or whatever, you have the knowledge to deviate with it. Um, yeah. You mentioned... Uh, volume a lot uh, crazy amounts of volume i think a uh, uh, ridiculous amount of study and playing i wrote down i quote i quote uh what do you think are the benefits of playing lots of volume and how do you manage to prevent autopiloting stagnating and just lacking quality well because you mentioned for example a downswing is not very likely with 150k hands but if you mm -hmm. play 150k hands very badly the downswing That's can be true. quite big <laughs> That's very true. I, I think the period of my life where I played the most volume was definitely in the, uh, the first lockdown. Um, that's when I was playing uh, up to 12 hours and studying like one or two hours every day. And what helped me the most back then is like every single day I would do something to my mind. Uh, but that'd be breath, like the breath work, the immersion, the boxing. That definitely, definitely helped. Uh, so you don't burn I, out, basically. Yeah. Uh, like it completely helped to not burn out. I feel like if I was just waking up, playing and studying, uh, with not taking you know the sunlight and doing all those things, I would not have uh, managed uh, to do what I, I did. Um, but for me, uh, volume always always worked. You said something about uh, you know not punting or not doing this or that, but I feel like if you're playing a lot, uh, like we're only humans. You will, you will, you know, uh, you will punt sometimes. You will make mistakes, and it's more about uh, coming to acceptance with it. I mean, and another big one. It was like the only point I actually remember from the mental game is that if you uh, improve drastically, like your B and C game, your mental C game, and you get to a point that, like, even say, like these days, I don't really play ten hours straight anymore. But let's say after two hours in, you do like your B game kind of starts kicking in. But if that B game is a game that you've improved, you know, over the years, then I mean, it, it's not uh, such a bad thing. Um, and for me, volume and playing more hands against populations, seeing more like kind of what the meta games were like. And from there, I could, you know, start making my assumptions, playing around with the solver and seeing uh, how I could improve my game. But I, I think at, at the professional poker player's career, different things work for different people. Uh, that's what always works for me. Uh, I don't know or, uh, if that would work for everyone, but uh, I think disconnecting from playing perfectly helped, uh, you know, helped a lot. And be also okay, like you said, about your B game. Uh, I think it's pretty big. Because then it's easier just to play and not feel guilty or feel like you know every time you make a mistake it's going to kill your very you know win rate like you're confident in how you're doing in a pool and then it's just a matter of you know doing it 
and being with it. And the, the next day you can go over certain hands or, or whatnot. You also credited a lot of your success to your work ethic. What exactly do you mean and how can players listening cultivate this skill if you think it's something that can be learned? Um, well, like we talked about earlier, I feel like if you have uh, goals, ambition, it's uh, a good idea to depend on like uh, discipline and getting stuff done every day. And in terms of like work ethics, I think getting some sort of mentor can really help, especially these days where poker, there's so much information. It's like so much all over the place. I feel like being with someone who's done it at least for a while, showing you the way can really help. Uh, but in terms of like personal, uh, personal in terms like motivated motivation, I think it's a good idea to have a clear vision and ambition or a goal of like where you want to be, and then every day use that you know to to put in the hours. Uh, let that be studying. Let that be talking with very close group of friends about hands, and of course, um, I think playing a healthy amount of volume and finding that right balance between playing and studying and not just focusing too much on the studying or focusing too much on the playing uh, definitely helps and hopefully with the right mentor or the you know right tools you'll start seeing results i think that's one of the biggest motivators once you're in that routine once you're in that mindset you know your first real heater uh, is like a taste of what can be if you just keep on you know piling and and working hard so when you were playing, I think you mentioned like 1 million hands of 500 in Zoom. Take us to a, to a week in the life. A week day in the in life. life. Yeah, of course. Day in the life, I would wake up. I do my breath work first thing in the morning. Then I'll do, uh, I take my cold shower. Uh, back then I was still, I was back home with my family. So I would go get some sun, uh, play around with my family, play my, my little brother hit a bit on the punching bag for boxing, get a sweat in. Uh, then in the afternoon, I do some studying, uh, one or two hours. Then again, I do some, like a bit of stretching in the afternoon. And then I would start playing uh, every day around six. And yeah, this is going to be pretty intense, but I was playing from six to six. So 12 hours, nonstop, uh, rinse and repeat. Uh, Wait, yeah. I, 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 I miss sleep. Where, where did sleep go? <laughs> you would sleep from like six to one. Uh, wake uh, up. Do that. All right, all right. So when, when you, you know. said I wake up, I was like in the morning, I was like six, where, where no, are no. we? <laughs> no, okay. So so wake up late, night schedule. There, there was conscious like the the night schedule. There was a conscious choice. It was, it was a conscious choice back then, yeah. It was a conscious choice. I mean, the games worked really, really, really well at night. Uh, and um, it enabled me to just zone in for 12 hours. And it was my first, like, real taste at full-time online. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't feel like all the burnout at first. It was a lot easier to, to just, you know, dig deep and put in the, the hours. And I also really had this uh, want that as soon as the borders would open, to travel a lot. So that was kind of my driving factor. I mean, games were amazing, things were going very well. It was my first taste of like what an online grind would look like. And like I had the you know, short-term goals of why I was doing that and also like the long-term, uh, how, how this, what this could lead you know, to. 
And yeah, you also, also saw it as like strong. COVID, COVID opportunity right now. Uh, you know, when the borders open, you, you, because maybe also it helped because you knew you were you weren't gonna do this for the next couple of years, but you immerse yourself in this period specifically. Yeah, exactly. And and I thought it was like now. Uh, I also really started taking the taste for online, and I thought that like after seeing what could be, there was a very few. Uh, chances or reasons that I would go back to playing live. So it was also for me like uh, this boot camp or, you know, intense period where I would really dive deep in online and try to uh, become the best player I could possibly, I possibly could. So really there were like all the right reasons to just, you know, play a ton, uh, make the most out of it. And then, uh, you know, we re, uh, rethink about it. Yeah, that makes a, that, 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 that makes a lot of sense. Uh, at some point also, you know, I think a lot of players are also in this situation. At some point, in order to move up the stakes, you have to switch from Zoom to regular tables, right? Because, yeah, higher than 500 Zoom or nowadays maybe even 200 Zoom doesn't really run. I'm sure a lot of listeners uh, are in this same situation. Um, how did this transition go for you? Yeah, well, I, I started playing like the one KNL tables uh, slowly, uh, you know, on the side, I, I might have had like four tables of Zoom and, you know, three to five regular tables. And I was slowly building the confidence, you know, in the regular games. And the transition was relatively smooth because like you said, 500 Zoom was slowly dying down. Like it was getting harder and harder to get games going. Like even back then during the day, there were no games and it would only be at night. So it was like kind of a, smooth transition but like what i quickly realized is the the games you know playing at 1knl 2knl uh like the skill skill gaps i never really felt there was like a really big one because oftentimes when you're playing regular games you have you know at least a recreational player in the pool uh when you put at certain point in the 500 zoom pool like uh, you'd get three four hands of like only regs and then you'd get a recreational player um but like looking back i think that was like a very good uh preparation for the regular games because in terms of skills i think it's the same but in terms of seeing many hands realizing the cycle of variance like realizing there were differences in like 200k hand samples which were like in incredibly insane uh, you know you can play 300k hands and win at like 10 bbn and the next 200k or 250k hands break even or you know, win at one. I think that's that was very eye-opening for transitioning to you know the regular games and then not focusing so much on the results because you you realize there was uh, so much uh, out of your hands in a sense like especially uh, the high stakes game game these days like the 5k NL uh, the 10k NL uh, even the highest volume players uh in 2022 like maybe played 100k or you know, 200k only a 5k and up so once you start appreciating like what variants could do to sample like that you in a sense uh not drop your expectations but are more okay with you know how things uh could go and that really helped me transition to 1k then 2k and then um at first I had someone with me to play the 5K and the bigger games, and then eventually just uh, on my own. 
Yeah, that makes actually a lot of sense. That's that's a very big advantage of that volume that you mentioned that you've seen it all, right? Oh yeah, 250k break-even stretch. Yeah, well, no problem. The only problem is when volume is less that let's say you're in a 250k break-even stretch and you play regular tables and there's less volume. We're not talking two months now, but we're talking more than a year, right? So it gets mentally way tougher. Yeah, exactly. I think that's why you have to find a very good balance where uh, you have the good balance between you know what you expected each year or what you can get out of poker in a year, but at the same time, use poker as a vehicle to drive you and to become, you know, everyday better version of yourself. Let that be personal growth, let that be uh, investments on the side, let that be, you know, having more time for your relationships. And I think... Uh, for me, these last couple of years, that mindset has really enabled me to, you know, go for playing 500 Zoom to playing the, the, the bigger games without so much of a, you know, uh, expectation or trying to control it. Uh, as yeah, you much. kind of, you kind of surrendered someone... to the variance because I can imagine that you can have two responses if you see that. You can be like, damn, hell no, this is variance, I'm out. Or you can see it and sort of surrender to it because th then we were talking about 500 zoom. But now, for example, you play, I think, between 1K and 10K. If you then magnify the variance, let's say your run good is at 1K and your run bad, your run bad is at 5,100, you can just lose for two years straight. Right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, especially for someone who's just starting out, like you said, uh, I think it's important to realize that. And then, like, of course, you want to put the hours in the, in the game studying. And uh, obviously, the higher the edge you will have on the field, if you're playing 200 NL, 100 NL, uh, 500 NL, uh, and your win rate you know, it's, is much higher, then like, yeah, maybe, maybe that really good stretch you might have at the beginning will be big enough that you'll be able to focus. You know, all your intention won't be on, on poker anymore, and then you can you know, focus on becoming the better version and working on other things. For sure, like yeah. I, I wouldn't want this to be discouraging. If anything, be guidance of uh, how you can use you know this as a vehicle to push you forward in a good direction. Because obviously, 250k hands are not great, but uh, if you have a good edge, it shouldn't happen uh, often. <laughs> that as well. And again, here it comes back. You know, let's say you played this 250k hands over a year sample, and you end up breaking even. You think a lot of your 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 mentality. You don't necessarily need that winnings at the end of the year to feel good about yourself because you like your day to day. You grow as a person. You have other things going on as well. Uh, and this is, I think, where actually tilt becomes a big problem when indeed people need that result in poker right at the end of the year to feel good. And then also when they don't or when they are not getting the results. Then midway, they're starting to freak out and they might do things that only increases the, the downswing because they play worse, they're tilted, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, whereas I think, I think that's definitely been a continuous trend in listening to you. I think that's an, an, a, a very good point you just made, especially for me. I feel like when you want something, you try to force it, right? And even if you're playing poker and you're playing a lot of hands, let's say you're on the downswing, you want to win money so badly. Uh, you're gonna try, you're gonna force things even subconsciously if you're not aware of it. But subconsciously, you're gonna make plays that you know are not. Uh, it's not even a punt. They're not really necessary. Like you're gonna strike, squeeze uh, every hand, or trying to win every hand. 
They're trying to the take more, control of it. Exactly. Uh, and the more I feel you want expectations, the less it might happen and vice versa. Like if everything is going well, you're just going with it. When you're, 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 you go to sit down, uh, you know, you're in a great mindset and you don't have to play crazy volume. But I feel like in those periods of my life is where I just went on uh, the, the, the nicest and smoothest uh, heaters, I guess. And this is kind of the, can we call it science? This is kind of the idea behind gratitude, right? Like if you're already grateful for everything, you already have everything, then actually because you're in, or the way I see it is because you're in a good state of mind, actually you will show up as a better version every time and you will actually receive the things. Whereas if you're constantly in lack, you're constantly stressed, you're constantly you're like, oh, I want things to change. You're very negative. And therefore you enter things way more negative and you actually get way more negative results. So it becomes like your mentality in this becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, I always see. Mm. Um, I was also wondering when you started moving up to 1K, 2K, 5K, 10K, was there at some point a jump between those stakes where you were like, oh, this is, uh, you know, th these are different opponents? Uh, to be completely honest, nothing drastic. Uh, like when the game is full and you're playing six-handed with a recreational player, there was no real stake where I saw a big difference. Like maybe certain lineups on, in 5K when you're playing on GG and you're playing... Uh, yeah, then you're playing MMA, you're playing, you know, dot. Yeah, sure, there's going to be a lot less room for a lot of the things we talked about where you can, you know, uh, play with the nodes and try to get advantage on them. Then it's more about focusing on the recreational player. But the two KNL games, not drastically, because you still have a lot of, uh, a bit of players from all profile types. You have the really, really good players that will start playing the game, uh, but that won't necessarily play at 1K. But again, you also have, you know, that those uh, hybrids who, who are there playing and uh, there's still that, you know, loophole we talked about where you can find an edge. And so I guess there is a difference between 1K and 2K, especially uh, when you're battling for a lobby, because then you're, you might be battling versus two uh, extremely good regs. And then it's like, if anything, it's a learning curve because you're trying to uh, outsmart one of the best players in the world and trying to see how they're trying to exploit you. And uh, so overall, I would say there's not like big differences other than like snippets of, you know, uh, samples where you will be in like very tough competition. But it's, I would say it's more like of a gradual, uh, uh, gradual increase in competition. It's not like the old days where you would battle at 5k and L on stars over five tables versus the best in the world i think those days are are behind us like gg these days when you jump in the game usually it's a full game with a recreational and uh, same with stars like there's almost no 5k it's mostly 2k now yeah and i remember the in the past we would do quite a lot of of battling on multiple tables it was like uh uh and that was even of as, as soon as they changed i think like a one table type of policy uh, mm -hmm. You would then battle, like, yeah, you, you would battle the anti one and the non anti one, and then you would do the 25 50 and 50 100. And they had four tables, and that was your session basically four tables yeah. of four handed. Uh, but even there, you know, for example, I was also game selecting. Obviously, you know, certain certain racks were, were worse than other racks. Um, I, I, I was wondering, like, obviously, there are some players that are going to be more difficult to play once you move up 
think you already mentioned MMA. Dot. Um, what makes someone more difficult to play? I think so, like what's gonna make someone more difficult to play is definitely uh, well two things. One is if that that person is just like very very solid in his strategies, where you don't really see too many uh, things that are uncommon. Uh, he's just going to be very solid. Like you said earlier, when you're playing Chicho, it's a lot about defense. So that person is going to have his checking ranges that are in check, very tough to exploit. His stabbing ranges that are in check, very tough to exploit. Seabank strategies, all of that stuff. And I think the ones that are even tougher to play are the ones who take it even one step further are, are these people uh, that will have all of this, but also you can sense have a somewhat of more uh, easiness to understand the player they have in front of them and adapt accordingly, even if it's like very small, uh, you know, uh, adaptations. So I think the ultimate player is a combination of both. Someone who's going to know how to adapt and deviate in front of his opponent, but also at the same time, who's going to be extremely tough uh, to play when he's in a defense. Yeah, I feel like good players, they always do the thing you don't want them to do. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's always like, oh, you know, any sizing that would be fine, except for this sizing. And bump, that sizing obviously rolls out. Like, yeah, they like stop if, you start, if you start feeling that the player can see your cards, then he's probably like a very good player. Exactly, you know, he goes thinner than you fought in one spot, and then yeah. he suddenly makes a great check back in another spot. And it feels like yeah. you're, you're just always... One one step behind, and then especially if you don't have any clear like exploit on a strategy, then it's time to time to stand up. <laughs> in my opinion, yeah. or or you can just take it as a learning experience. Uh, yeah, th th that is definitely true. I I usually try to reflect, like especially when people use lines. Uh, mm -hmm. Then I'm like reflect. Okay, I'm in a tough spot. Am I in a tough spot specifically with my hand? You know, and is it just lucky or unlucky, however you want to call it. Uh, or is this indeed like a play or the exact sizing or exact play that puts my range in a very tough spot? And from that, you can learn, like, why am I in a tough spot now? Mm. Exactly. And I, I feel like when your mindset, even for someone who's aspiring to move up, instead of seeing like these tough players as uh, a red flag or, uh, you know, something to shy away from, if anything, it's a very cheap uh, coaching and learning curve. Like, what is this person doing that's putting me in this tough spot, like you said? Why, you know, why am I in this tough spot? And uh, like, what leak maybe I have that he's trying to exploit or how am I constructing my range in this spot, which is making it easy for him uh, to exploit. And I think, especially moving up, you constantly want to be in this mindset of using other players and the way they play against you to learn things about your game. Because uh, poker is a game where everyone is constantly trying to get an edge, you know, even a slight edge on each other. And trying to understand what how these best players are doing it, which most likely are a bit you know stronger technically than you, uh, I think is a great way to you know be more comfortable uh, moving up. Whereas if you're scared and you don't want to play against them, then you're you know, just going to stay at the lower limit. Uh, would you then recommend just jumping in three-handed, or would you say you know oh you know there's a recreation at the table? Oh, that's how I usually saw it. Like you join a table, there's a recreational, so sort of your your salary is guaranteed in a certain way, depending on how, how big how big the recreational is. And then there's like every profile 
has a certain challenge for you. Let's say there's someone better that can trigger like your competitive side, the recreational triggers like your professional side that you're here to make money. Maybe there's like a worse wreck than you. Okay, how can I maximally exploit this worse wreck? Like if you look for it, every profile has gives you a certain opportunity at the table. Is that more how you would look at it? So uh, for me, uh, I think one of the, the biggest factors, uh, if financially it's fine for you to you know battle even if when there's no recreational player, uh, I think it's the best way to challenge yourself. Basically, uh, that's that's how I've always seen it. Like if it's at a stake where I don't really care if you know we're swinging thirty or forty buy-ins, uh, I'd rather play versus the best in the world as a learning curve. Um, because then it's the you know the ultimate test is three-handed. Uh, when there's recreational, it changes the whole dynamic. Uh, so I think if you're trying to push yourself to become the best you know poker player you can within your means and financially you can you know take uh, the, the swings, uh, then yeah, for sure, battle just with regs, battle three-hand, battle four-handed, you know, uh, whatever you can get your hands on. Um, but if you're in the mindset that you want to you know stroll. Uh, up the stakes, take your shots, you know, in a qualitative way and move up slowly, uh, then yeah, maybe battling three-handed is not uh, ideal, even though I think it would increase your, you know, your learning curve. But I think uh, it's, all, it's, it's always the intention with which you go into that battle, right? That I think exactly. is very important. Yeah, exactly. Because especially these days, the, you know, the battles at 2K now, it's not like it used to be. Uh, back in the days, it wouldn't take long for the game to fill up. These days, sometimes you're just battling for three hours, and you know no one is, you know, likely going to show up. Uh, you're just playing for, you know, you're just playing. And yeah, like you said, I, that the intention, the yeah, the intention is everything. Uh, either you want to go for profit, which I think is completely fine. You have enough games, you know, across platforms to just play when there's a recreational player, or are you trying to push yourself, you know, a bit more uh, every day in your game and. Uh, uh, and in that case, of course, you want to be battling and you want to be battling knowing that there's a good chance no one shows up. Uh, you're just battling. But yeah, setting your intention, I think, is huge, uh, even for yourself uh, as like a big driving force of uh, every day why you're doing this and, uh, you know, how you're going to overcome the. Yeah, and I guess also being being conscious of that, let's say you go in and lose three binds, you might freak out the fact that you didn't win, but winning was maybe not necessarily obviously you know you hope to win but it wasn't necessarily the pure intention for jumping into that game yeah for sure i mean you could lose three buy-ins, and if you lose three buy-ins and it tilts you then it's fine you know just quit try again the next day but uh yeah obviously you're gonna go in especially if you're playing against very good players you have to realize there's a good chance you're losing small in the game uh, and are you happy playing three-handed uh, if you're losing, then it's going to be you know pretty crazy variant. Are you happy losing three-handed versus two guys uh, with no one no one trouble? Uh, I think that's up to you. Uh, and the more financially, I guess, uh, secure you are, the more I think open you will be to pushing yourself and uh, learning that way. I guess. Yeah, this this is something that people have to reflect on and go inwards and see 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 what's best for them. Uh, Adam, when you moved up, did you? notice a difference between the racks and if so what do you think set at the higher racks apart from the lower racks that you used to play against 
Yeah, so my format heads up sitting goes. You ended up basically playing recreational players for most of your career, and then you'd move up levels and you'd play the best regulars at that level. Reason being, the worst regulars went on been hiding during that period, and you basically play the three to five best guys at your format to kind of get initiated into that level. And yeah, I think always like going into a kind of higher level. First of all, you've got your own issues that you're dealing with. You generally put people on a pedestal. You overrate people. You start deviating your strategy because you think everyone's very good. But at the same time, exactly uh, uh, what Nafel was saying, like generally there's more solid. They're very solid. You can't think of the areas you're trying to pick at them. So they've got this kind of hard to attack. This very good defense that you're struggling to uh, to go back against. I played heads up, sit and go. So it's all like kind of defense, offense, defense, offense. You're trying to exploit whilst not getting exploited. So you've got to kind of get that blend right almost every time. And like I said, the good players always, they're always that one step ahead. They're always like, put you, you go for that thing value bet, they go for the check raise. You're like, ah, they're always got like right on the edge. And that's generally uh, because like, I think especially heads up, it's more like a, a game of chess, like back and forth. And basically who's who's the most moves ahead in the terms of strategy. So yeah, I think a solid player is always hard to play against for them. A player who's got moves, who's countering your strategy becomes very tricky. But yeah, I really like what um, you were saying that this whole conversation about treating like tough players as like cheap coaching. That is like such a powerful mindset because I picture myself like when I had the, the biggest kind of mindset issues, it was always because I went in there with expectations and I wanted to win. I wanted to get good results. I was like, prove myself. And I had like a bit of ego. Every time like I handled loss as well, it was always when I relaxed that, dropped those expectations. And when I played good players, I was like, all right, get my notepad out. This guy's going to put me in lots of tough spots today. What can I learn from him? So I think for yourself, like you've been able to adapt this mindset very, very well due to your almost like bigger picture vision of like where you're going. You're trying to grow as a person, put yourself in tough situations to grow and evolve. So when you're playing poker, it's not this kind of assessment of, am I good? Do I need to win? You're almost like playing like a bigger game. And then when you play poker, you're like, all right, tough opponents. What can I learn from these guys? How can I get some cheap coaching off one of some of the best players in the world? And how can I yeah, basically become better because of that? So yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know, I'm not, not sure how this question will go down, but have you had any particular kind of high points in your career in terms of moments you're proud of when you've been able to maybe go toe to toe with tough opponents, deal with adversity in a, in a kind of challenging way? Is there any kind of peak high points that you're most proud of that's, that's uh, kind of stand out? Uh, I think there's been a, like a few months where I've been like, for example, my first uh, really big month uh, online where I was just sitting and playing against anyone on stars. Uh, and eventually, obviously there's variants, but I was playing very well at three-handed. And it was also another one is when I came um, at peace with this mindset and being happy to just play sometimes versus two of the best in the world and just battling with them for hours and being uh, completely confident and uh, not like out of my shoes in terms of what was going on and uh, if I thought they had a big advantage on me of me. And I think with my journey and the way it went, arriving to that stage for me was like something I eventually was very proud, proud about is like almost all that work eventually led to you just being comfortable almost in any lineup and know going with the flow and seeing what happens and uh yeah that mindset was kind of uh, uh like solidified when i had like those two uh great months in the last 12 months yeah amazing so all the work paid off and being a confidence almost whatever you sit down with let's flip the script a bit let's say you sat down three-handed to david jones and nacho i think two of the guys you mentioned as tough opponents Let's say you felt out your depth. Let's say like you're, you didn't quite feel like you're ready yet, but you're in a, a lineup with two good players. 
How do you think you would generally process that? How do you generally learn from like a, an experience like that? Because a lot of players would initially go, oh, well, they're too good for me. Maybe game select better, avoid those kind of situations. But I feel like for you, you would kind of lean into that. You go, right, these guys are good. Let's get to work. So how would you generally approach if you sat down with players and you didn't feel comfortable in your strategy? So I think uh, for, uh, the first and most important point is to try not to overthink it. Uh, at the end of the game, it's poker. We're all humans, and you know people have uh, two cards. So just if you decide to uh, play with tougher opponents, the more I think the more you overthink uh, it, the more you'll start overthinking every uh, decision. And that's what we talked about earlier. Uh, if you start overthinking everything, like the mental burden becomes too much, I think, to handle. And so. Uh, if you don't have expectations, you're very comfortable, like in the with like the financial shot, because it, it doesn't is at that point it's not even a shot, uh, because you're not technically making money, so it's you should be in a position where it's not even considered. For example, uh, like if you're taking a shot in a 2K game, this is like okay, uh, here is why I'm doing this. Uh, so like the financial, I think pressure should be you know out of it, and if you have these two together, like you. Go with a clear mind. You're you're confident in your ability to you know play with two other poker players and learn from them and vice versa, without the financial pressure. I think that's already a very very big uh, point because if like you're taking a shot in a three-handed game, so, like the fin financially it's a bit tight, and then uh, after like you know maybe you get sacked the first time, you start overthinking why am I doing this, uh, etc. I think those two are like a recipe for uh, disaster, and that's why, like, as much I was happy to battle, you know, almost anyone at 2K, I wouldn't just sit like if there were two two tough opponents on stars at 10K now. Then uh, this goes, you know, it breaks one of the points. Like, sure, I I, I think skill wise it would be fine, but it would be uh, to a financial point where it would bother me, and uh, I think that's a very important point for anyone uh, in that. Uh, situation i guess i like that i like those two in synergy first of all not overthinking it i think that's like the the main starting point to uh not it's a game of poker you're playing two opponents they might have edge on you you might have edge on them some binds are going to swing around either way not in the world and then pairing that with not putting yourself in a kind of tough financial situation having the role to kind of play the games that you're in so that if you win or lose it's not that relevant it doesn't really matter yeah i think the the hardest skill of those is the not overthinking i think that's the one way a lot of players would benefit a lot from the kind of practices you're using to let the mind kind of thoughts pass through events pass through because to uh for somebody who uh, does overthink it's very hard for them to think of quiet in the mind for the mind to be quiet for them and not overthinking is very challenging because they're the mind's so active and they get so absorbed in it so they might lose a few binds to a tough opponent and we can say okay well just don't listen to the mind just don't overthink it but their mind's racing they're like oh overthinking stuff and they're they're always trying to solve a million problems when in reality it's the, the kind of stepping back so yeah, i think that's like the the skill that they need to work on how can you uh quite in the mind, so to speak, or at least be less attached, more, more, be more observant, more of the observer we spoke about, so that you're not as absorbed in results. All right, I've got a few questions I would like to ask. One is, what is the most important lesson poker has taught you? I think we've learned a lot from this conversation so far, but is there any lesson that stands out as a, a yeah, one that poker has taught you? Yeah, for sure. I think poker, for me, the biggest takeaway these last few years is, uh, uh, like, for one, like letting go in a sense of like the things you can't really control uh, and in poker i mean it's pretty obvious like you're no matter how good no matter how you know great you show up every day 
there are certain things that are completely out of your control. So it has kind of taught me that and also uh, set a structure of like discipline to grow as a person and learn from uh, like the various steps in my journey. And uh, those I think were the, you know, biggest ones. And uh, of course, through this game, you learn a lot, a lot about yourself. Like when you're constantly challenging yourself mentally, you kind of know uh, where sometimes your limit lies and how possibly you can push it even more. But uh, I, I'm incredibly grateful to have found this game because I think the path I found myself in of like the self-development, uh, understanding a lot about like the mental well-being, uh, you know, what I can do in my life to, to go to the future, future self I'd be proud of. Uh, a lot of it are thanks to poker and some of the challenges that, you're, uh, that, they, they, that are put in front of you through this game. And then it's, I guess, up to you to go, uh, you know, take the path you want to overcome them. Yeah, I think as, as you've described it there, poker is like an amazing growth path. And there's all the skills we need to develop in order to uh, keep progressing through poker, but also like we're developing as a person through the pursuit of what we're doing. I think you mentioned that some really valuable skills there, like letting go, letting go of attachments, letting go of connection to results, letting go of the ego, which is trying to get involved in creating a kind of construct for you. You talk about creating like a structure and like a disciplined approach to go after your goals and realize if you work hard at something and put time and energy into it, you can get the outcome that you want. That's transferable to anything that you pursue outside of poker. And once you really double down on like the trust the process mentality, you realize, ah, oh, wait a second, I can grow in any area I direct my attention to, which is a really, really powerful thing. So listening to you speak today, it could be easy to make the assumption that you've kind of had a lot of traits that have set you up well to be a good, good poker player. But I'm also getting the kind of other side where perhaps a lot of these traits have been developed through poker. So do you feel like there's any traits that I like, say going into poker that you maybe lacked? Like, the traits we talked about today, is there anything that you really had to work on in the poker context that allowed you to have the success you've had? Um, yeah, I think like I was definitely not always like immune to my emotions when I was playing. At first, uh, I could definitely you know find myself being attached to res results, especially when I was playing live, like feeling uh, you know going with the session. Like when I was at a high, I was feeling amazing. When I started losing, not so much. So I think that sort of detachment was definitely not a trait. Um, I think the only thing that could be argued was a bit more easier for me to do was like having spending so many hours playing video games when I was younger, when I first came back to online and I was playing you know, up to 12 tables at the same time. I think I definitely had some sort of, uh, it was at least easier for me to see like playing so many tables for such a long period of time without feeling um, exhausted, but I think the key the key traits um, like being in better control of your emotions when you're at the table, trusting your assumptions, um, being confident in like when you're taking uh, bold moves. I think all of that uh, is definitely something anyone can work towards to, um, and like maybe stepping every day, and eventually, when you set the right habits, the right routine, yeah, you will see drastic uh, improvements. I like that you said that, that you, that anyone can work through it and progress with it. Cause I think this is often the, um, the wrong assumption, like the low to mid stakes players will make is they'll see someone like yourself playing high stakes and they'll go, oh yeah, but like, look at all the attributes he's got, the character traits, like, of course he can deal with variance. He doesn't have tilt, doesn't have emotional issues. Of course he's just kind of built 
to play high stakes poker. Look at this guy. But in reality, it's like you've got a lot of skills that you've developed and a lot of them weren't there before poker or like at least like they got magnified during it. It's like, I think dealing with emotions as a male in general is very challenging. And when you're pursuing something like poker, where your ego's on the line, money's on the line, you're putting time and energy into it, all of a sudden, a lot of emotions come to the surface and you've got to le learn to deal with them, learn to regulate your emotional responses. And for a lot of people, that's the, a challenge that is very overwhelming at first. But yeah, I think if you realize, okay, yeah, I need to take baby steps towards this. I need to realize I'm responding to my environment in a kind of emotional way. But I can learn skills that allow to ease that, right? And once you start to uh, kind of take that step back, be kind of more present, kind of be the observer, you realize that emotions are just passing through the same way as thoughts. We can actually kind of calibrate our emotional responses to our environments. And poker is actually one of the, like, the most hostile environments. If you can like cal calibrate your emotional responses to poker, almost nothing else is going to trigger you. I speak with lots of poker players and they always kind of figure out what their triggers are, what things cause emotional responses. Almost none of them talk about things outside of poker because they can deal with all them. They can deal with the argument with the partner. They can deal with the traffic jam. They can deal with losing some investment money. But poker, it all comes up. So I think once you uh, realize, okay, there's a skill to develop here and, and regulate my emotional responses, if I get good in the poker context, I pretty much set up for the rest of my life in terms of using that skill elsewhere. So yeah, I really like how you've talked about development skills that have been, yeah, a kind of ongoing progression because anyone on this path to self-improvements, you got to start somewhere and there's always a, a next step you can take, which is great. So I wanted to double back to uh, one of the practices that we didn't go deep into, which was your boxing. And from you listening to you speak, I can tell you've fortified like a real strong mindset. And I feel, I feel like sometimes when we're building a strong mindset, a lot of people go to like kind of the meditation and kind of, like kind of cognitive pursuits. But I also think there's a lot of fortifying the mind in physical pursuits in doing something tough physically where you can't back away and you've got to step into the pain, whether it's physical pain or a challenge to come up to the side. And from my experience of most people I work with who uh, have a strong mindset, like a real um, ability to deal with adversity, have some form of physical practice that they do regularly where they challenge themselves. So for yourself, I want to, I'm interested to know how boxing fits into your kind of self-development overall and what are some of the benefits you get from boxing, which are maybe separate to some of your more cognitive pursuits. Yeah, I think, um, you know, um, of course, meditation and all that stuff are very good to like calm the emotions, but especially when you're doing something as intense as poker, sometimes you have things that just want to come out and explode. And it, even when you look back, back in the days, like us men, oftentimes we've always been uh, like pushed to growth when we're in situations that are a bit, you know, faced with adversary or uh, sometimes in uh, contact and fighting and whatnot. And I think boxing does an amazing job at like complementing all that kind of like Zen mindset where you want to be calm and let things come and go with the other, complete other side of it. Like sometimes, yeah, you want to explode. Like you want to, you know, hit, you want to shout, you want to let things actually uh, come out of your body. And I think that's actually uh, a very healthy way. And not only that, I think anyone uh, who's in like the self-development route or wants to better themselves doing something physical, let that be boxing, let that be uh, whatever, weightlifting, um, is going to give you like a really good, one, escape for your emotions, but two, for your confidence and your mind. Like it's like that place where you go, uh, you know you're doing something that's, you know, can take you out of your comfort zone. The first time you're going to step in the ring with another human, like your face too, obviously it's going to be uncomfortable, but you're going to go through it. And I think that's also that sort of like mental challenges and over overcoming them. And at the same time, like doing something physical that's gonna, you know, uh, wake you up in a sense and like, uh, you know, almost, you know, make, make you a better man or a woman 
is very very important, uh, especially especially if you're playing online and uh, spending a lot of time behind the computer. You you really don't I think want to be just behind home or behind the computer, and then when you're not playing, uh, doing all that meditation and breath work, I think you definitely want to have something that, in a sense, shakes you and lets your emotion comes uh, in a much maybe more ferocious way. Yeah, I totally agree. It's almost like a safe place to outlet some emotions. And I think as, as males, we generally suppress a lot of emotions. We generally don't experience them. Or when we do express them, we do them in the, the wrong way. Like we have a tilt episode, I will explode in the like, wrong way. Whereas exercise can give you an avenue to kind of get some physical kind of movement to get emotions out. And I always feel like heightened emotions, whether it's frustration, anger, are generally like trying to pass through. And often we suppress them because there's not really a safe outlet. So having some sort of physical activity to uh, yeah, vent some anger, so to speak, or let out emotions, I think is very healthy. I also like what you said in terms of it kind of complements well the kind of more zen-like uh, pursuits of like kind of meditating. I almost feel like we should be um, the monk and the warrior. The monk and the warrior combined. So uh, we're very zen, we're very in control, we're the monk most of the day. But if we want to, we can go to warrior mode. We can just turn on, like we activate ourselves and go after something. And I think our physiology is very much designed to incorporate movements. And when we basically cut off movement, let's say we're an online player and we don't do much movement at all, it's very hard for the body to function. And it's maximum potential because we design a lot of the brains kind of uh, coordinated around moving around, you know, optimize the physiology through movement. So I think incorporating some sort of physical activity and also, like I said, taking on challenges, physical challenges, whether it's just going to the gym and pushing yourself for a sweat, whether it's a lifting goal, whether it's boxing, where you're trying to, uh, yeah, create, create some sort of challenge there. I think it's an amazing kind of side thing you can do and almost everyone should be doing alongside, yeah, kind of some according to my podcast. Yeah, I really like the, the overall balance. Like I think throughout this conversation, we're getting a lot of, Kind of holistic views of how you approach poker and life and i really like how uh, yeah you almost feel like you've got every avenue covered in terms of yeah creating that kind of balance to uh to growth and moving forward and one thing we haven't touched on is relationships so i'm curious to know uh, how relationships fit into you so i think health you're doing a really great job obviously your, your meditation your mental practice are great in terms of relationships it can be personal relationships but also with your friends how do you fit that into your kind of busy poker schedule yeah of course well i i'm always i've been very lucky to have a like a very supportive family, so like on that side, it's always been uh, quite healthy. And uh, the same with like the, my close group of friends. Um, even back home, I'm one of the only, at least person I know who who plays poker. So when I'm spending time with my friends, it's a complete disconnect from like this quite intense game. Like now, most of my close friends live here, uh, which is very very lucky. And then um, I do have a few close poker friends. But those are mostly the ones that live in London that I, I see when I when I spend my time in London. But um, making time for relationships has never really been a, an issue. Like usually, I will always prioritize like my healthy relationships. You know, spending time with them over say uh, putting a massive amount of volume. And like the only time when that was the case is when COVID happened and everything was on lockdown. But I think definitely having. Uh, a healthy relationship that you can rely on that's not necessarily connected to poker uh, is quite uh, is quite important um, for me i guess it just happened i was never uh, really surrounded by a lot of poker players uh, i had a few good ones who were amazing like throughout my journey but uh, yeah yeah, I think that helps a lot as well, having friends outside of poker. I think for yourself, going for university, moving to a foreign city like London, playing poker in the casino, 
obviously you meet in poker players there, but you're generally in environments where you're meeting lots of different characters, different types of people. I think it's very good to create a friend group or ideally just naturally meet people of interest who are outside of what you're doing. Because if all your friends are poker players, you often like have your identity more and more tied up in being a poker player, fit into the poker role within your friend group. If you have friends, like most of my friends literally care nothing about anything I do kind of academically poker wise, this like normally as a person. So when I speak with them, it's like a very free in time. So like, don't, don't talk about anything like any pursuit wise. It's more like having a good time and being in their company. So that's a very free in experience where I've got other kind of clients of mine and poker players. I know uh, where all their friends are poker players. So when they meet up, there's an element of how's poker going? What's, what's happening? There's never this kind of, overall switch off so yeah, i think it's good too if you can't have friends outside of poker but overall having healthy relationships which you nurture you i think yeah if you live like myself i live in bali sometimes hard to see my friends back home you gotta make that extra effort to uh, keep those relationships going to keep on top of them because i think relationships when they're going well it's amazing and everything feels great but once we once they start to slide we almost need to overbalance to re recalibrate them so i think it's good to know okay what relationships matter to me and how can i nurture those relationships over a long period of time so i always feel connected to people and i've got support when i need it so in line with that kind of a separate kind of avenue of relationships but myself and renee were looking for you as before this conversation and you're not really present on social media was that a conscious decision to not be present and talk us through the kind of decision not to really post much or be active on many social platforms well, for me, uh, social media is mostly like my private, uh, like private circle of friends. Like I never open up as my, um, you know, online alias with like social media platform and whatnot. Because to be honest, for me, it was always a way. Um, eventually, if you're going to do coaching or if you're going to do, uh, you know, program, then sure, it's it's nice to share your progress, share your results. But other than that, I've always been like quite discreet. Um, with everything that's going on since the beginning of my journey in poker. And it's only as I'm feeling that maybe like two, three, four years, uh, I will start completely stepping away from it and where maybe I'll be happy checking on some people and, you know, uh, being a mentor for them and teaching them and whatnot that where social media for my alias starts making a bit more sense. But up until now, it's always been like very discreet and, uh, only for close friends and things like that. I really like it. And yeah, I think for yourself, it's it shows how much clarity you have on the path you're on and the vision. I think often social media, when we're not using it correctly, it's just a distraction. And we end up like almost like spreading ourselves too thin or absorbing stuff that we don't need to. For yourself, you've got social media to connect with friends and stay close to people, but you're not really putting stuff out in the kind of the, the mainstream at the moment. That being said, I think in the future, you're going to have a big online presence. I really do feel that way because I feel like you've got so much to share. You've got so much wisdom on so many different topics. I think at some point when you get to the kind of point where you want to start sharing your story more, giving more back, I think you'll have a great online platform in terms of whatever you want to do. Whether it's a podcast, YouTube channel, or whatever you want. But I do think in the future, you will probably use social media as a way to share your voice and your story. But yeah, for now, I think it's actually also good as well to go, right, right now, I'm just, I'm focused on me. I'm on my growth path. I'm doing my stuff. And yeah, anything else is going to be a distraction at this stage. So yeah, watch your mind. All right, great stuff. Renee, have you got any uh, further questions to uh, finish on? It's also what they say, right? I think it's in the airplane when the masks come down that you first have to take care of your own mask, then your child, right? You first have to focus on yourself in order if you really want to be able to help someone else in a proper way. So I think that's uh, kind of the journey that uh, I feel like you're still on. I had uh, uh, one more point. Uh, you mentioned that poker can have an incredible positive impact on people's lives, right? I think you're a great example of that. Um, 
if you could sum up your approach to being a poker player, what would the main lesson be? What would be like the main takeaway people? What would be the main takeaway that you want people to have from the conversation we had today? I would like it um, people see poker as a driving force to you becoming a better version of yourself. And uh, once you're in that path, then hopefully, eventually, results will come to you. But uh, instead of wanting poker for the life, like creating the environment and using it, you know, as a pushing force uh, to better yourself, and maybe eventually with time coming to that point. And I think poker oftentimes gets like a negative stigma uh, because of how a lot of us or a lot of people have seen poker in the past as like this, maybe this uh, you know negative game that can ruin your life. But when you see it as something that's going to challenge you mentally, that's going to, you know, force you if you want to get to a high level to work on yourself, your self-development, work on your mental resilience, then it's, you know, probably one of the greatest uh, game uh, strategy game in the world because it forces you to work on yourself, whereas a lot of other games, uh, not as much. And yeah, I'm hoping that's what like people uh, get inspired and get out of our, you know, talk today for sure, this mindset around poker, which can be very positive if the person pursuing it, uh, you know, sees it in that way. I guess also if you see it as an opportunity to grow, right? Like you, you, you get towards all these obstacles, right? Along the journey and you clearly see them as roadblocks that you can use to grow as a person where other people are more frustrating that, oh, why is it so hard? Why do we have to improve this? You understand? It's a different type of mindset. They they just want to get to the end quickly because they are doing it because they want maybe something materialistic at the end or they want the finances where you, I feel like, and this is really a strength of yours, that you're really present in the process and you get a lot of joy out of that process. And I think that's, for me, the main takeaway from what I get from our conversation Uh yeah, that that you 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 have a lot of trust and belief that you know everything will be okay. Uh, you just enjoy every day. You enjoy the opportunities that poker gives you as for yourself to grow as a person, not only for the financial side that will come eventually, right in the long term. But you can really detach from from that from the short term, and I think that's a great quality. Yeah, awesome. All right. Well, thank you for uh, for for being on. Like you said, you're very discreet. You don't you usually open up. So uh, feel very grateful that you wanted to do that on our pod. And like Adam said, uh, I would I would love to consume more of you in the future. So if you <laughs> if you're planning on opening up with a podcast, for example, that would be great to listen to. I think. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. I felt like we had a great conversation, and you two uh, complement each other really, really well. Uh, it was a real pleasure talking to you and. Hopefully, uh, we shared some inspiring information for all the up-and-coming poker players or the ones who are already there. <laughs> Wrapping up another great podcast here with our main takeaways. Adam, what were your main takeaways for this episode? So many. We don't know where to begin, but I'm going to start with his overall mindset of approaching poker as a growth path. And he almost sees poker as a kind of vehicle to become a better version of himself, to grow and to improve. Therefore, any obstacle he runs into with the poker tables is in the context and framing of this is an opportunity to get better. This is just a thing to accept and move past. And everything's almost like a, a leveling up opportunity. This allows him to have 
less expectations than most players. He's not so much linked to the results. He's very detached, as he talks about with some practices like meditations helped him to get there. He talks about uh, letting go of any sort of like feelings that he has in, in game. He talked about at first when he got into poker, he had some emotional kind of flare-ups, but now he's let everything come, let everything go. Very much zen-like in his approach to uh, observing his thoughts, like almost like sitting back in the kind of seat itself and not getting too dragged in to everything that's happening. He, he talks about uh, basically when he was having assumptions in game, let's say an assumption of a strategy and he made a mistake and the assumption was wrong, the ability to let, let that go. I thought that was a real strong message. I've never heard anyone speak of it in that those terms, but letting assumptions that you get wrong, go. Not judging, not letting the mind get quiet and then just returning back to this kind of intuitive state. So he's someone who's done a lot of work on himself, meditating daily. I really liked his daily practice of 10 minutes of meditation in the morning, 10 minutes in the evening to quiet the mind, but also give him this kind of calm ability to see um, his, his thoughts and emotions. His breathwork practice, very interesting. He's using Wim Hof breathing daily, combined with cold exposure to uh, kind of get his nervous system kind of ready to deal with challenges going on in poker. He's doing daily exercise with boxing. So uh, all this kind of holistic ways of priming himself to perform well at the poker tables. I think when you uh, look at high six players at, like like Bunk 30, you see like they're they approach poker very much like an athlete. They're covering so many areas of their performance so that when they sit down to play poker, they're ready. I really liked his approach to uh, having like a big vision. He's got a big vision for where he wants to go and then create like a structured, almost like disciplined approach just to put the work in. And he sees everything as a trust in the process. I'm going to get to my outcomes someday. So I don't need to worry about results day to day, week to week. So he's very detached because he trusts that he's doing enough work. He's showing up daily. He's okay with what happens results-wise. And yeah, the process is going to take him to where he go, wants to go eventually. And even if that only takes him to be a better version of himself, I think he'd be pretty happy. So he's one of those guys who's obviously crushing in poker, but he's also leveling up every time he sits down to play, which is a really, really great thing to see. How about yourself, Renny? What are some of the main takeaways that you've taken? Yeah, especially what you said, like he surrenders to the possibility that maybe due to variance, he can maybe have a break-even year. But exactly like you said, I don't think he would even bother you know, because he's so pro process focused and like in the end, you know, he's just happy day to day doing what he does that the end result, a good, a good year, for example, is sort of like a bonus or at least that, that's the vibe that I got from him. I'm sure, you know, he would prefer to have a good, a good year financially, but honestly, I've, I would feel like if anyone could handle it uh, well, it's probably him. Uh, I think he also mentioned like, it's okay to have a goal, but you cannot need to reach that goal in order to feel a certain way in order to feel successful, for example. That's kind of uh, tied to that. Um, I think another very important uh, point that he pointed out was all the way in the beginning, I think when we talked about live poker, uh, knowing your role. And this has come back with some guys that we talked on this pod who play live. Uh, so for the online players listening, know your role when you go to the live poker tables, right? You're there to entertain the recreational. Now, how the recreational wants to be entertained, that might vary. So we need to brush up our social reading skills in terms of looking at the situation. And probably my favorite main takeaway of all was uh, for live poker, be deep and be there when the fish is about to punt. That was uh, that was definitely my main takeaway. It's like, okay. So that was uh, making, making poker, uh, making money in poker in a nutshell. We actually also touched on this later that... Um, uh, like especially mistakes made on later streets or bigger pots, you know, that the EV differences on the river, for example, will always be way bigger than, for example, on the flop. He also talked, shared a lot of wisdom there about solver work, how he, again, doesn't use it just to see how he's going to play, but really uses it as a tool. 
maybe also start to node look around, test his assumptions to see what's the actual strategy. So again, it's a part, I think using a solver was a part of his technical repertoire, but definitely not all. And I think actually something that you mentioned as well, I think is very important that he was able to, he said, I make a decision or I go with my assumption. And as soon as I make it, it's over, right? That's what he said. And you need to have that skill if you want to play 150,000 hands a month. Because if 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 you're going to second-guess decisions, for example, I would be like, I cannot play 150k hands a month because I would be second-guessing decisions way too often. I would be like, hmm, I'm not really sure. Let me mark this hand, blah, blah, blah. And he said it would... It, 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 I, I'm definitely not as far as him in terms of that. Like, when you, when you have to look certain hands up because you're in doubt, you're not really sure... It's sort of like sort of mental mental space that it takes up. And I have to sort of clear it by reviewing certain hands or taking a look at it. Whereas if you if nothing builds up, you can just keep on playing. I can imagine that, yeah, then playing that many hours that he talked about is uh, definitely more doable. I was like, how, how would I ever do that? But now I understand why I wouldn't be able to do that because I would be way too, I guess, perfectionistic in terms of wanting to look up certain plays. Uh, so this is definitely something that I'm going to work on personally. That's definitely uh, a good... In general, I thought there were a lot of main takeaways for myself and points that I could improve on as a poker player. So I'm sure a lot of listeners uh, will benefit tremendously. So that's why, again, I want to thank our guests for coming on. I want to thank everyone for tuning in again. I want to thank Adam for hosting this amazing podcast again with me this year. Thank you. And I will see all of you guys in the next episode. We have a couple of good casts lined up already. So I'm really looking forward to spreading more podcasts. Everyone, good luck at the tables and see you in the next one. <laughs>